the sky is the sea. So close. You are such a crammer. Oh my god, that's exactly the word. Crammer. I was thinking that. I, I was like. Crammer versus crammer. <laughs> Like, there's two weeks between episodes of this show. Two weeks between the recording sessions. And oh, in the, like, God. two hours before we record, you're just Ugh. pulling up URLs and looking things up and reading things and doing, just watch this PBS series in, in the time warp that you will create between now <laughs> and the recording, which is an hour and a half from now. You... Got what I need? <laughs> you say I'm just a friend. You, my friend, are lucky that I love you so much... Because nobody who listens to this program knows what a horrible monster you actually are. Mm-hmm. I'm a Can gentleman about you? it. Can you do the you the right way? Can you do that? Is Dawn? No, no, no. Can you do the you like from the song? Uh, you! It's pretty good. You, you, this is one of your, your many skills. Not remembering lyrics is, yeah, remembering lyrics is not one See, of See, the light skills. where the sky meets the sea, it calls me. No, it's a line. It's a line. It's the horizon. See the, the line, line where the say. See the line where the line meets with me. It uh, lines me. Yeah. It's a secret geometry puzzle hidden in every Disney song. Watch Polygons. this YouTube video. Don't forget to like and subscribe. A monster, and like every podcast that I'm on, I will not reveal how much my co-host is the true monster. What, what are you complaining about now? I don't even know. You're what the you're worst. About. You are the worst. You are, you are so impossible to deal with. There's so many things I don't say about how broken our relationship is because I truly, I have true fondness for you that you never reciprocate. And that's okay. That's fine. That's part of being a monster. I understand that. What, what have I done now? You. <laughs> Lay in the clip. Mike? Uh, I... John, I'm out of my depth on every program that we do. Every episode of this show that we do, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I try so hard, and so I cram. I, cr- I crammer and, and crammer. That, that's why I'm a monster this time, because you feel like you need to cram? I don't it's, feel like I, I need to cram. You're you know more gonna, about this stuff than I do. You're always going to be the good cop, and you're always going to be the smart one. <laughs> and I'm always going to be your <laughs> dopey little cop. pal. Is that still on the topic list? i got to make sure it's still down there. Which one? I, I might have deleted it. Every, every time you say that, I want to put it back. Put it back. Are we ever going to get to dad jeans? Anyway, (laughs) I... (laughs) I get to them every day. You are such a monster because you... (laughs) It's getting getting closer naturally. You, (laughs) I don't, I don't know if you actually prepare. And here's the problem. Because you're a monster, I don't think you have to prepare. I think you just think and then words come out and they're sensible and people go, hmm, that seems really smart. And here's me. I don't. So I'm like, oh, well, which, it's all which? In your head. We both sound like we both sound like that second one. When I see a red <laughs> tomato, do you see a red tomato? All I know is that I try to at least get some kind of a foothold into what we're going to talk about. If I can at least like read an index or catch up on some vocab, and so I ask you, I ask you for just basic guidance. What are we gonna talk about this week? I don't and then, have any guidance. Like you, that thing you sent me, that podcast with what's his face. I listened to that whole podcast. I'm like, oh, this was good. Like, and you, if you, you probably had not remember sent me that. It. I wouldn't have known that. Existed. I bet you'll remember a lot of it. I did. I'll, you know, I listened to it only a couple of days ago. I remember most of it. Ugh, monster. So you didn't have to print out the uh, TED Talk transcript or anything. You didn't have to either. You may have done that. Oh, didn't I? No, you didn't. You did not. 
it just appears that I had to. Yeah. At least your printer works. Oh, is your printer not working? I'm just print, trying to print like a permission slip today, and it's like the old dance. Like, why is the printer not printing? Looking for printer. I know the actual solution would be for me to reboot the uh, the airport hub that my thing is plugged printer is plugged into, which is working fine as a hub, but apparently the printer part is not working. But instead, I had to unplug it from there and stretch the cord over it and plug it into my wife's computer to print. Printing still a problem all these years later. Like an animal, still still a problem, and. I'm very happy with our printer. It wasn't too costly. Of course, mostly you spend that on ink and fancy paper. Mm-hmm. But we've got an Epson all-in-one that I like. But, uh, yeah, sometimes it just gets confused and lost. It doesn't happen too much, but then you got to do the whole pin rain dance and everything again. Have you tested whether the printer works with Eero? Uh, Like plugging it into it? Well, I mean, I, I set up the Eero... Uh, they yeah. were kind enough to send some because they sponsored a show that I was on. I think you had one we talked about. Actually, they probably did this show. But it, the Eero is really great, and I was just about ready to go all in. But there were two things in my mind, I think, that kept me from doing it. One was Back to My Mac, even though I never use Back to My Mac to get to my house. And the other one was... Also, it never works, by the way. I don't... Not like never, to... but it's a low percentage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the uh, the other one was the the printer, where I thought, like, I want to have... You know, so we do the printer. I think I told you this. We do the printer plus the Google print thing. So I can like print from the office to the home thing. And that works, you know, pretty fine. What is the Google print thing? Your printer is just on the internet and then it has like a gateway to do it? Yeah, it's exactly it. It's on the internet with a gateway. I don't know. It's, uh, it's a Google <laughs> print thing. You go in, you configure it, and it says, here's my printer. And then you can print. Is there a hardware component to that? No. All right. So it's just, and so obviously your, your printer is on the network. And then you do something on everything's on the internet, John. It. My printer's not. Oh boy, Internet of Things, Google Print, Google Cloud Print. I'll figure it out. Anyway, continue. So you can print from your office, which is you know, well, like, when, like you, when you're away, at least Daddy's papers come out sometimes. I I cannot talk anymore about Apple. I'm going to lose my mind. Your business papers. Mm. <laughs> Daddy's business papers are coming out. <laughs> Or the Credence tape. I can't talk about Apple anymore. I had a small meltdown today. I'm back to work, which I don't normally do. I actually said how I feel about Apple, and I feel really ashamed about it. Uh, as we record this, that would be two, two weeks after this comes out, two weeks ago. <laughs> but um, the uh, when, when I got the ear, I was like, man, this thing works great. We talked about You and I talked about this, I think, yeah, offline, about how like you were getting uh, coverage in parts of your house, like corners where you hadn't gotten it before. I was having like really better luck than i've got with a um what do i have i got the flat one at work i got the tall one no i got the tall one i got the tall one plus a an old airport that i use for bridging Mm -hmm. to get to the rest of the house and i had i was getting much better results plus i figured i mean it's a smart system it gets better etc etc but I, i had all these objections in my mind that included the printer that included back to my mac just all the stuff like well obviously i can't use something that's not an apple uh router I mean, how would I do all my things? And then, like, when I sit down like a human and think about it, I'm like, well, what are all those things, really? It's like printing. Well, you know, the printer can handle that. I could probably figure that out. I never use back to my Mac. Time machine, I mean, we're not really using it at home. And then when they made the announcement about the routers, I was like, hmm, I wonder if I should just, you know, give this another spin with the Eero. Because I was really happy with the results. But I had all the usual objections because I'm an Apple guy and I want Apple stuff. You could have done what I did, which is I still have my Apple unconnected. I just turned the Wi-Fi off on it. Yeah, I think I was doing something. 
what I did was backwards. What they say you can do, so you go from uh, Fios to what? To the Apple thing. Fios Which, to Apple ahead. thing to Eero, and Eero's yep. in bridge mode. And yep, and there's no Wi-Fi turned on on the Apple thing. The Apple thing is not a wireless device. It's entirely a wired hub that also does all the whatever the hell it's supposed to be doing. My printer plugs into the Apple thing via yeah. USB, and then every I don't know, three weeks, that stops working, and I have to... Uh, well, not three weeks. It's probably Every three weeks, it stops working to the point where I have to uh, do something. Every six months, it stops working to the point where I have to restart the uh, the router. Like, the, it's not the router that's broken. It's whatever the hell, you know, the print server or whatever. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think I was trying to do the opposite, which probably doesn't make sense. There is a USB port on the Euro, but it doesn't do anything for you. Don't plug anything in there. It's for, like, diagnostics and stuff. It's not It's not a place where you it's plug not for, It's not in. for you. No, exactly. You got it. How many times I have to tell you the USB port is not for you? Yeah, yeah, but where's the maze? It's not for you. You didn't. Oh, that's right. You haven't. You didn't listen to the. Uh, we just recorded that. Last God time. damn it! You are a monster. I was suggesting titles. Of course, I listened to the entire thing. Oh, I don't know. I don't God know. damn you, it, John! You're in a whole different time zone there. Uh, it bothers, you know, our times don't overlap. So when you're cramming, usually, uh, like yeah. when I start getting texts from your cramming, I'm usually like. In traffic on my way home, yeah. or I'm, I'm making dinner, yeah. or I'm cleaning up after dinner, or I'm putting the kids to bed. Like these are the times when the texts start coming. So I'm. It's God. That must be hard. so. That must be so inconvenient for you to be in the Eastern time zone. No, oh my gosh! It's inconvenient for me that you're in the Western time zone. That's, that's a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I have some kind of a uh, <laughs> an Internet of Things, perhaps in my ass, where like as soon as I do anything of any import. Everybody in the world contacts me. Like I'm crossing the street with my daughter and everything's, and then Dan wants to have a conversation. It's like, it always happens like all day long. Nobody talks to me, which is fine. But then like, I think it must be a winding down near the end of a long work day. And that's like the middle of your day. Yeah. When it's the, it's the afternoon of my day when I'm moving on to different duties. But I tried to hold off with it. I should ask you about this. So I know, but very often I have something to tweet to you in the morning but then i realized oh i can't tweet this now because it's 4 a.m where you are right so i try to right. wait until it's like nine but then on the other hand i think well no he's gotta have he knows about do not disturb if uh-huh. i send it now he's not gonna see it until he wakes up it's not like he's gonna be woken from a uh deep and peaceful sleep by my text arriving at 4 30 he's not even gonna see that until it's seven and he's had his coffee right is, um, is yeah. that the case yeah the main thing is like waking up in the morning and like I just sit there or I lay there for as long as I can trying to eke out five more minutes. And I think, don't look at the phone. Don't look at the phone. And I got that uh, Studio Neat Dingus at the bedside. And I'm just like, I'm just staring at it. And I'm just like, don't look at the phone. Don't look at the phone. Because like, I don't really care. But at the same time, I know the very first thing I do before I do anything I want to do, I have to get through the notifications. And that's when everybody, everybody, every, everybody everywhere else, like, lets me know what they need from me. And it's like, ugh. How do you do that to yourself? I, I don't even look at my phone until, like, at least, at the very least, I, I've, I've woken, showered, and have prepared my breakfast. Like, you don't suffer um, from this like I do. You don't suffer. Isn't, well, yeah. I mean, like, just, you know, if, if you have to, you have to do one of those things, like, leave your phone downstairs or, you know, in a different room. Yeah. So it's not in the room where you're sleeping, so... I got the dingus right there. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I probably should. It's usually no big deal. It's usually like, you know, it's like it's like a few notifications, it's deliveries. It's, you know, maybe it's just Mike saying, "Hey, I did the thing." And, you know, that's it's no big deal. But and uh, it's a, and it's whatever really important thing I had to text you at 4 a.m., right? 
That's fine. Sometimes, though. Well, you know, sometimes I, I text you at night because I know you're a night owl. You're probably uh, burnishing your armor or something, and I probably shouldn't be bothering you because you're. But you're I, going... I do not disturb turns on at like like eight p.m. my time or something. Like it's actually, I think it might be a little bit early because sometimes there'll be something that comes in. I'm like, oh, I was awake when that happened. It I just know. you know doesn't do. You don't see it at all until like I'm about to go to bed. I check one last check. I'm like, hmm, what's this? Let oh. me go look. I think I do mine at, at eight Pacific. People, I do night shift from uh, seven p.m. to seven a.m. And I got DND from eight fifteen to eight oh five, which is arbitrary, but that's that's what I do. It's very precise. I don't know how people live without the do not disturb. Well, mine's not that bad. Nine p.m. to seven a.m. is my yeah. do not disturb. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, the thing is, I'll likely be, you know, looking at it periodically um, anyway. But you know, it's just it's it's weird though to be sitting there doing nothing important. And then you look at your phone, and there's like nine messages, and you're like, "Oh God, what is this about?" Are you so in demand? Are people are people really want your time? They no, they don't. Reaching out to you. To, I'm just. Uh, I'm very vulnerable, John. And it, it might be that that Alex has made an iMac for her cat, and I'm actually happy <laughs> to hear about it. Right. But you know, but then I, of course I panic, and I think, well, you know, what can this be? Yeah. Are they are they asking you about your TBS reports that you don't, didn't put the right cover on? Yeah, new cover sheets. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Away, makers of super cool dynamite luggage of the future. You got to check these folks out. You go to awaytravel.com slash diffs. And if you use the offer code diffs, you're going to get $20 off your order. This stuff is so cool. Away is a creator of amazing luggage made from the highest quality materials while offering a lower price compared to other brands. How do they do this? I'll tell you. They cut out the middleman. You just go to awaytravel.com slash diffs. You'll be able to peruse Away's collection of suitcases, all made with premium German polycarbonate, which is unrivaled in strength and impact resistance, and still remains lightweight. They've got four sizes of suitcase. They've got the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium and the large, and nine fantastic colors to choose from. Now, the interior of an Away suitcase, it features a patent-pending compression system, which is so helpful if you're an overpacker. And uh, in the carry-on bag, you get this compression system. It even includes an integrated laptop and iPad holder. How cool is that? All Away cases feature four 360-degree spinner wheels. Let me tell you, once you've gone with the four wheels on a suitcase, you never look back. And uh, they got a TSA combination lock built in. This thing works a treat. It's got a removable, washable laundry bag. It just rolls out. You put your, your laundry in there, and it's the coolest thing. But I haven't even told you the coolest part yet. This is the mind blower. Best feature, it's got an integrated USB power brick. There's a battery in the suitcase and USB ports that you can use to charge your dinguses on the go. Both sizes of the carry-on feature USB ports so you can charge any of your needed devices while you're traveling. Phone, tablet, e-reader, no matter what, if it's powered over USB, you are set. You're never going to be without power again. This thing is so cool. They sent me one of these. And you know, for the first time in maybe just about forever, I can't wait to travel. I am so excited to use this. I've been playing with the charger. It's, it does several charges of a device. I tested it out. It's super cool. Uh, this, it, I can't believe the cost on this thing. It's, <laughs> this is the kind of suitcase you usually pay a lot more money for. Suitcase, that's an old-time word. Who am I? Here's the thing. Away believe in the quality of their products, and they offer a lifetime guarantee. If anything breaks, they'll fix or replace it for life. They also have a 100-day trial, so live with it, travel with it. If at any point you decide your Away case isn't for you, you can return it for a full refund with no questions asked. That's nuts. Away currently ships for free in the U.S. They also ship to Canada, the U.K., Germany, Sweden, and Australia. There's no better time than the holiday season to look at getting an Away case. This is a fantastic gift 
for the traveler in your life. And they even have two limited edition colors, snow and asphalt. They're going to look stylish when traveling back home after the holidays. And Away have a couple extra products that are great gift ideas, too. Their gift set includes a mini Away suitcase, perfect for all your essentials, cozy travel socks, a gift card, Aesop's Jet Set Toiletries Kit, and they also have a new password holder and luggage tag set. They sent me one of these things, and it is gorgeous. It is so high quality. Mm, mm, mm. They also have a 100% baby alpaca travel blanket. Oh, Jiminy Christmas. Way cozier than the blankets you find on planes. It's the total package, or as we used to say in college, the topacage. To find out more about Away, please go to awaytravel.com slash diffs. And you're going to use that offer code diffs, D-I-F-F-S, at checkout for $20 off any of their suitcases. Awaytravel.com slash diffs, using that offer code diffs. So great. Such a great new sponsor. Uh, I love this thing to death. Thank you so much to Away for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. So, yeah, I've crammed. I crammed a little bit. And see, I didn't have time to fully cram because I wanted to cram on the thing that we're talking about. And then I wanted to cram on why people might have different feelings about it. And I didn't have time to do a full, as you say, a scientific survey. So I just yeah, did some pure – I made burgers for the family. And I made it kind of abruptly because I was looking at my phone trying to cram. And then I go to this godforsaken Drupal site on PBS. <laughs> Every browser had too many redirects. The videos would not load in anything. And then I try and do like an ID link and I'd go to block, 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 block four. And I'm like, who is doing this? This is the kind of crap I used to do for money. PBS, come on, hold yourself to a higher standard. I still need to keep reminding myself to watch Soundbreaking now that everyone's raved about it. Speaking of PBS, I have it swirled away somewhere, but don't let me forget about that. Okay, I'll put it on the list. Well, where do, we, we, I think we have kind of a lot tonight. Yeah, we do. We'll just go. We'll go until we're exhausted. Yeah. I reserve the right to, to have a beer at some point. Only if you make the uh, the can opening sound. Oh, and that's that's when uh, Elliot's being introduced. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like your avatar today too. By the way, you're you're all firing on all cylinders today. You get an avatar that is correctly framed, that is high resolution, uh, that is to- topic appropriate. Mm-hmm. I figured out mm-hmm. how to do it. Mm-hmm. So here's what you got to do: you're in your Skype, you double click on your uh, Clementine, and then you double click on Clementine again. The big picture. You want to hit edit. This is not intuitive, but they got the uh, the regular picture dingus. You hit edit, but then you got to drag in your high res. Yes, from the desktop, and then you get the high res. There you go. Is that what you do? I don't, I never change my avatar. You know that it's always the same little guy there. It's always always Zelda. That's not okay. Zelda. Yeah, it's Zelda. Um, Zelda's more on the horse. Fitzgerald, yeah, you know. <laughs> Zelda Fitzgerald. <laughs> mm-hmm. That wasn't even a joke. No, no, not all these are jokes. Sometimes they're deadly serious. <laughs> that was my my favorite comeback from my toddler daughter when she was. That's she was, not even a joke. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. I said something to her, and it was really stupid. And in her, and I won't try to imitate her voice, but she said, "That's not funny. That's not even a joke." And did you say you don't know what a joke is? I said, "Shut up. I can get rid of you anytime I feel like it. You serve it my pleasure, pleasure, case, <laughs> my pleasure." <laughs> <laughs> many, many reasons. Last episode, <laughs> I'm in a silly mood now. I might need that beer. Um, last episode, we finally uh, t- tackled the topic of free will. And at least as I expected, we got some feedback. Here's the thing I learned about free will is that nobody sends one tweet about free will. There's a, there's like a, there's a three tweet minimum. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's difficult to uh, 
to say anything about it without like a wind up and, and then like a cool down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm going to throw this to you. I, I This is just one of the many reasons I won't reveal this to our listeners. Yet another reason you're a monster where I said to you, hey, hey, big shot, you're the one with all the shots on all the thoughts on free will. You should be the one that gathers all the follow up. And then you were all meh. Look at that. That's what? me gathering it right there. Is it in the thing? Yeah, there's three bullet points. Oh, come on. One of them you beat me to. But that's there you go. So we had a lot of uh, follow-up from, from listeners, and uh, not a lot, but some, and uh, various points of view. Several people wrote in to say, here's something else to look at about that. Um, as the chief follow-upper-in-chief, uh, give us follow-up on free will. All right. Um, a lot of people did have opinions and wanted to argue about definitions and were confused about things. Um, and it, and I think, I mean, I don't reply to all tweets like, as we discussed before, I don't have time to reply to all of them, but, I, you know, I do read them. But especially with the free will things, like, it's impossible. To, you know, you said there's a three-tweet minimum for trying to make a point coming in our direction. Like, going back and trying to engage in conversations, it, it's just Twitter is not the medium for talking about free will, let's say that. Right? So uh, so if there are even fewer replies than normal, don't take it as, as an insult. It's just like, I look at them and I'm like, I foresee trying to talk about this over Twitter is just not one of those topics that lends itself to tiny, concise bursts, uh, just because there's so much, there's so little common ground. There's so much disagreement about what we're even talking about that it takes, it would take so long to even just one person to be able to communicate something successfully to the other. Yeah. But I also, you know, I just want to say compliments though. We did not get that many, there's a very minimum of, you know, just general bombs being thrown. There were generally very thoughtful responses. Yeah, like, you know, I'm always, we talk about this in the after show, after we uh, stop the, the show proper, and I'm always afraid that we're going to get lots of angry feedback, but we don't. Uh, people, people, surprise, the people who listen to the show uh, are all nice and enjoy listening to the show. We don't have a lot of hate listeners, which is, you know, is a thing on other podcasts that I have done and do, where people <laughs> seem to really dislike the show. And yet, listen every week, and then repeatedly tell you why. Sometimes like, it makes sometimes it makes the host a little bit sensitive. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> the listeners to the show are great and always have nice, constructive things to say, and they're all very smart and surely all very attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, all above average. Yeah. Uh, so one piece of free will follow up that I did want to talk about because I didn't touch on it in the, the last episode, kind of on purpose, is good old Heisenberg and his uncertainty principle. And I didn't bring that up, and neither did you, but very often in discussions about free will, somebody wants to talk about that. And the reason I didn't bring it up is, as I framed things, like, you know, with my definitions of terms and what I'm interested in or whatever, it's unrelated. Like, it doesn't it doesn't change anything about what I said. And that itself was uh, confusing to a lot of people who brought it up. It's like, oh, you but you forgot about the uncertainty principle. Do you, in your cramming, or in your past experience, do you think you could capsule summary Heisenberg uncertainty principle? Just the broadest conceptual level, which is that at a quantum, as I understood it from my one basic physics class, that at a quantum level, the act of observation has an effect on what's being observed. I asked you to summarize it because I was hoping you knew more than I did about it. I, I have the same very broad level understanding. <laughs> I mean, I took way. I took a lot of years of physics courses. I had physics. I had physics for poets. We read. We read Albert Einstein. We read Adolf Baker. We read the Dancing Wooly Masters. It was basically liberal arts, 
explanation in words of concepts from modern physics. So, I mean, I know a tiny bit more, but not a lot more. But isn't that kind of the basic, isn't that the, the salient part for what we're talking about here? Yeah, yeah. yeah so, like, in, in my major, I took, like, three, four, way too many physics courses. By the end of it, I was in so far over my head, it wasn't even funny. Like, it just, <laughs> I, I was like, if there's another one of these courses, I'm just not going to pass it, right? And so I did, at some point, learn this stuff well enough to pass tests with reasonably good grades and do all the math with the tests with math on them yeah lots and lots of math lots and lots of funny characters that i had trouble drawing because i had never had to draw this particular you know greek symbol before wow. and now it's in every single equation um so yeah uh heisenberg uncertainty principle uh, uh not possible to know the position and velocity of a particle at the same time uh if you want to uh, the and you know like you said if you want to know one of them the act of measuring it changes the other one and so we can never quite know where things are. So we have to kind of say there's some probability of these particles being in this position. And if you want to find out for certain, you have to measure. But as you said, the act of measuring changes things. So that's is it. That's is it, is it isn't it the is it the impact of light? Oh, I don't know. I don't remember the details of why. Um, you know why why to both these things can't be known at the same time, and why the act of measuring uh, affects things. But you know that, that's that's the gist of it. And I think a lot of uh, you know what we just gave is the sort of People Magazine explanation. And I don't know anything deeper than, to be clear, I, I couldn't give you anything better than the People Magazine explanation. So I hope the People Magazine explanation is at least close. Um, but the takeaway from that is like, oh, but thing, so things are random and you can't quite know where they are. So how can we have a deterministic universe when, uh, you know, things are just happening randomly and, you know, and you're uncertain about things. So uh, two points about that. One, I thought, you know, if... My whole point about um, it, it being deterministic, but if you wanted to, you know, does anybody know what's going to happen next? If you wanted to figure out what's going to happen next, you would have to know both the complete set of rules that govern how things interact, which we don't have now. We have like quantum mechanics and we have relativity and we don't have like a grand unified theory of everything. But assuming you had that, you're like, I know how everything's going to interact. And you would also have to know the initial state. But, you know, you, I think at some point I said you need to know the initial position and velocity and energy and everything of all the particles. And if you know all the information about the initial conditions and you know all the rules that govern the interactions, that you could play it out. But, of course, how, you know, where would you know that? You would have to know it in a different universe that doesn't interact with that one. So for every particle in the universe you're interested in, you'd have to have a whole other universe with, with many multiples of that number of particles entirely constructing a giant machine that's going to simulate the other universe. And it couldn't interact with it. And so it's totally fits within the deterministic universe idea that people within the system may not have a way to determine, you know, like, you know, the, if you're in the system, the act of measuring it does affect it. Um, and if you're in the system, you have no way to know what the initial conditions are, at least as far as we're aware right now. And so if you don't know the initial conditions and every attempt to measure it modifies it, like trying to measure the system from within the system is a problem, but it doesn't mean the whole thing's not deterministic. It just means when you're in it, you know, a you can't measure it, and b even if you could, where would you keep the information about it? Because you'd have to keep that in the same universe, and you'd have to get some sort of, I don't know, like how isolated can you get the place where you put the information from the thing you're measuring, and you know, blah blah blah. Like even the vacuum. There's all these uh, studies coming out recently about the weird behavior of a supposed almost total vacuum and the effect uh it has on things you know the effect nothing has on things and you know it's not nothing but it's very little there in the vacuum of space and they're finding weird effects that it has so anyway um uncertainty principle doesn't change anything uh it's 
all it means is that we within the system can't figure things out, but it doesn't mean that the system itself isn't deterministic. Um, it just it's it further reinforces the idea of don't worry about it. No one knows what's going to happen next. Or if they did know, they're not in the same universe as you, so it's fine. Okay. The other thing on uncertainty principle, uh, like I said, the the uh, popular understanding is like, oh, it's randomness. Like there's you know people think deterministic is like you know a bunch of gears or turn this and push that button and that thing pops out there and it happens the same way. But it's like, but randomness is like, well, it's not you know I do this and that happens. That's deterministic. Randomness is like you don't know which way it's going to go going to go left it's going to go right it's going to be here it's going to there it's just random and there is no place really for the actual concept of randomness down at the smallest level in my idea of a deterministic universe obviously there's randomness in terms of you know i don't know which way uh, you know a coin flip is going to go or whatever you know, there's our experience of randomness in our lives which is just right. because everything is so complicated that we can't predict which is fine but the idea that you know at the very smallest levels of physics that there would be randomness it's like well what makes something end up in one position or another it's again it's again you're always just looking for that effect without a cause it's like oh it's just random sometimes it does this and sometimes that and there's no reason for it so far you don't really have anything that happens with no reason and now you can say we don't know the reason but you know it's it's hard for me to even conceive of the idea that things would end up one way or the other you know with no cause you know with nothing is making them do that you know like randomness at the very smallest levels seems not to be a thing as far as i'm able to tell um and again just because we can't measure it and the act of measuring it changes it doesn't mean that it's not absolutely deterministic within there and if you had if you knew the all the rules and the initial conditions that you could play it out and, and even even the definition of random would seem to vary depending on what level you're talking about yeah because like coin flips you know those are it's not a mystery as far as we're aware of, you know, what makes the coin land a certain way. We, you know, at the macro level, we have the initial position of the coin and we know what forces are exerted on it and we know the surrounding environment. And if we could run all those things out, we could predict pretty perfectly how the coin's going to land because we're working at a very chunky level, right? Um, but it lands the way it does because of how it was flipped and how it started off and the weather and the wind and, you know, everything like... But there's no, there's no, there's way. no magic trick. It isn't like you flip right. a coin. It's not, the, it the coin is not deciding. There's not some like you know, and, and as you get on smaller and smaller scales, obviously those weird subatomic effects that we don't understand uh, start to come in. And if we were to try to measure them, then we would be affecting the things, and so we are you know causing the outcomes. Like the fact that we can't, the fact that it is unknowable to us doesn't mean you know the fact that it's unknown does not mean it's unknowable. It's unknowable to us within the system, but it's not. Uh, necessarily unknowable and i have a difficult time conceiving of a system where there is true randomness unless you, right. the entire system is a simulation in which case the actual causes that's even even that's not like say we're in a simulation and we're running on this machine and the machine has a random number generator that, like that's another thing like computers all computers have random number generators like well they have pseudo random number generators but like well what about those random true random uh hardware that just read like uh you know static uh, you know, line noise, electrical noise, and they produce random numbers out of that, just entropy, right? That's not la- random either. Like, that noise comes from somewhere. It just happens to be a, a a source that we don't have a bead on, and if we were to try to measure, we would mess with, right? But it's still not randomness. Like, we, randomness is, like, acceptable at whatever level of chunkiness that you uh, that you need it to be. But if you go all the way down, even in the simulation case, for running on a big, giant computer, the computer's coming up with random numbers to decide where an electron's going to be. Uh, then what? What is the computer using for its random numbers? Like, there's 
there's there's no place in my uh in, in my idea for of a deterministic universe for actual true randomness at the deepest level because it just doesn't make sense With, uh, barring magic because i mean randomness is is seems like is a statistical measurement in some ways of a known set of things and what the outcome could be but but it isn't like you go into a casino and one time out of a thousand, you spin the roulette wheel and creme brulee, creme brulee shows up because that's not on the wheel. Like that would be that would, in some ways that would be extremely random, but that's like not within the set of possible well, outcomes. That, well, that would be rare, but like everything in the casino could be, happens be at, very <laughs> very unique. Yeah, everything in the casino happens at uh, at at a level that is explicable. Like the reason the little ball and the roulette wheel ends up where it does is because of how it's structured the wheel and how fast the wheel is turning, and you know, like that's why it lands where it does. It's not. You know, it's random as far as we're concerned and that we can't predict. Like, you can't see the guy throw it and know exactly where it's going to go because you can't play that out in your head because it's just too complicated. But it's not random in that, like, there's cause and effect everywhere. It hits this thing, goes there, goes... Like, it just, you know, that's why it ends up where it does. It's not... And so that's the big scale. If you keep going down, 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 down and say, how does this electron, you know, the electron might be here and it might be there and it might be there and here's this probability map of where this electron might be. But we don't really know where it is exactly. But it's in one of those places, or at least until we measure it, maybe it's, it's, you know, it's in all those places. But as soon as we measure it, aha, there it is. But then now we've modified things by measuring it. And, you know, anyway, in my model, the electron is going to go where it's going to go. And just because you don't know where it is and can't measure, can't uh, find out where it is without screwing with it doesn't mean it's not going where it's going to go based on a set of rules. Fair enough. Unsatisfying, but true. And speaking of unsatisfying, the second item here is is tail chasing, which I did myself on the show, and it's very difficult not to do. Mm-hmm. It's the part where it's like, oh, so you know, blah blah blah, deterministic universe, things are going to turn out the way they're going to turn out, but nobody knows how they're going to turn out, and uh, no one is making you do things, so just you've got free will as far as you're concerned. Um, but really, things are going to turn out the way they're going to turn out. And that was when we were talking about, like, well, why don't, you know, if nothing matters and everything's going to turn out the way it's going to turn out, why don't we just, you know, be totally evil and kill everybody and morals have no meaning and so on and so forth. And what I was trying to say is, like, don't dwell on that. Um, like, if, it, bottom line is that if you are the kind of person who, if you start thinking about this, eventually comes to the conclusion that nothing matters and you go on a killing spree, uh, I don't think... Uh, most people aren't like that. Yeah, that's that's one of those things that where you worry about what other people do. Right, but but, but still, like... But no, I mean, in terms it, of this... People week, are looking for a reason. Why should I continue to try to do good things? Well, I'm going to tell you the reason you are going to try to continue to do good things is because you are a person who's inclined to do good things. Like, you you know, all these, these, these concepts that we, you know, create for ourselves. Like, oh, you have a conscience. You feel bad when you do bad things. You feel good when you do good things. You want to be happy... You know that doing this will not make you happy, that will have consequences and so on and so forth. That's why you're going to do it, right? Um, And we're all in a big, complicated system interacting with each other. Me doing this podcast and talking to someone is affecting how other people think and they're affecting how I think and how what I say and my entire life leading up to this has has led to me saying, all like, it's all just a bunch of marbles being dumped out of a bucket, but it's so incredibly complicated. None of us know how it's going to turn out and no one is controlling it. Um, So there's no sense in dwelling on that, but for the people who are going to dwell on it and come to the conclusion that they, you know, they did, they want to travel that slippery slope to Dr. Manhattan, even without the ability to, uh, blow people up and pointing at them. Um, then that's going to happen. But for most people it won't happen. So don't worry about it. <laughs> that's a consolation. 
Yeah, well, I mean, because you end up tasting your tails. Like, but then, but if I'm always going to do this, but then I'm th- it, like, you'll, you will, you will tie yourself in knots. You will mm-hmm. tie yourself mentally in knots. And maybe that's what you have to do for a little while until you just relax and just move on. So far, so good. Now, now we get to the, the stuff that bent my mind a little bit. Um, yeah, I mentioned last time that I was thinking about, you know, I've, I've really been enjoying Westworld. The um, last episode aired this most recent Sunday as we record this. And um, as I was cramming, thinking about free will over the last couple weeks um, or a few weeks, for some reason, like, it kept popping into my head watching, uh, watching Westworld. And it was, just, it was just kind of on my mind, you know? And I think we might actually talk about that later, I think. But one of the things I came across uh, randomly was a uh, podcast showed up in my Overcast uh, from a show I like a lot called uh, You Are Not So Smart. And the most recent episode, which is in show notes, is uh, is called Do We? It's called Just Reality. Is the name of the episode? Episode ninety, and it's an interview uh, David does with a guy named Donald Hoffman. Uh, and my my whistle stop uh, explanation of Donald Hoffman he's <laughs> he's he seems like he's kind of an emerging um, science celebrity uh, who is doing I. It sounds like he, with the help of a lot of people in other fields, he's doing commentary and research around the idea of, I think the phrase, is the phrase he uses, re- reconstruction of reality? Basically, is is our, is it necessarily true that our cognition of things in the world is what we would call reality? And, you know, and he talks about the role of basically like evolutionary biology, how things have survived all over time. And he came up with some, some very interesting and very provocative ideas that I'm going to be thinking about for a while, one way or another, that I, I thought really um, went well with what we were talking about last week. And then um, I'll just say that maybe the best way to get, in, get into his world is to go look at his TED Talk, which is called Do We See Reality As It Is? And uh, I showed it to my family, and everybody liked it. I thought it was... Uh, it, it took one of these bong talk ideas, and I don't know anything about the science behind what he's doing. I ho- I'm hoping you did a lot of the heavy lifting on that. But I thought the way that he described the role that perception has had uh, historically seems to indicate that those who see better and see what is truly there tend to be the one whose genes get passed down. But he also has some very interesting examples, both of historical examples where seeing was way wrong as well as, as I say, some emerging um, science around perception, some Monte Carlo um, modeling that shows, you know, what the role of seeing things as it is really means. I'm not describing this very well because I don't really understand it. But I want to know what you thought. I thought it was really thought-provoking. And, and add well, anything else here to yeah, what so I missed. The podcast that I listened to, which is, I didn't, I, I don't know, I kind of watched TED, TED Talks at this moment, so I didn't uh, watch the TED Talk, but I did listen to the John, John, podcast. John, those, those are ideas worth sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, and... His, if I had to summarize his pitch, it is, um, if it, his his big idea is, you know, all we've got are our senses. Um, how do we know our senses are providing us a view of reality that is even remotely accurate? And his his big comparison was like, well, the old how view. how do we know that the how do we know that the thing that is experienced by our senses is what we think of as empirical reality? Right, and so his uh his big picture thing comparing it to the the past is like. You know, scientists and biologists, he's kind of in the middle of these things. The idea that, like, okay, well, different animals see 
different things like you know some animals see different wavelengths of light than we do they can hear different you know uh, frequencies of sound than we do they have different senses and smell and so on and so forth and so obviously our perceptions of the world are all very different you know some animals can't see much color but have better night vision and you know and the whole idea was that even down to like you know things that don't have eyeballs and, and ears and everything that every living creature has its perception abilities and we're all seeing a different slice of the pie like we right. see one slice of it bats see another dogs see a different one mice amoebas whatever um and so none of us see the full truth of reality but we're all just seeing sub slices and his idea because bi- biologically we we have the resources that we have that theoretically help us to have better as he says fitness theoretically to survive but you know he gives some really good i don't want to take off your topic but he gives some really interesting examples of not just with humans but with animals where like as you say i mean the the extrapolating for me it comes down to like well just because a dog can't see in color doesn't mean colors don't exist it's just that we are able to see colors is there a possibility that there are things we don't see in in the same this is my example but in the same way that maybe a dog or that a lot of mammals don't see colors it doesn't mean the colors don't exist. It just means we have different wiring for perceiving those things. And just because we, we know the things that we can't perceive doesn't mean that there's that that's exactly what is there. So his, his big idea, though, is counter to what I just described, which is all the different animals seeing different slices of the pie. His big idea is that all these different creatures with the different perceptions, including us, are not seeing subsets of the truth. Instead none of us are seeing there like we're not even it's not like we're subdividing this pie into you get this part of the pie and get that part and there's overlaps or whatever we have entirely different pies like none of us are looking at reality none of our perceptions are giving us it's not as if you if you combine the perceptions of different creatures and, and that you would build up to a larger whole because that presumes that we are seeing a subset of reality what he's saying is no your senses are not yeah. giving you a picture of reality at all you are what you are seeing is whatever you needed to see you know what whatever was selected for you're seeing you are what ended up right and you know he keeps he does a terrible computer analogy which i'm not going to repeat you thought that was terrible yeah because i've been knowing too much about computers does not help with these analogies maybe it works for other people oh i thought it was i thought it was a very thought-provoking like this is like the user interface well don't don't butcher it at least give it the way he gave it He's, yeah, I'm going to do this if you say, don't. He's trying to say that, like, uh, uh, no, it's no, so no, 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 you know, no, 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 no. You're not allowed to do the because you already keep refusing to give examples, and that confuses people. He has what he calls this this desktop metaphor for oh, desktop. He's so old. But the basic point of his example that's very thought provoking. No. Is I'll, that I'll try, to, I'll try to come up with a better? Go, no, example. go ahead, go ahead. I Even though that's what he calls this whole theory, please go ahead, John. Improve on his yeah, theory. Yeah, but it's it's terrible. Like. I know what he's getting at, but it's not. He picked the wrong. He should have picked the topic that he knew something about instead of playing this. What he's trying to say in his got the wrong guy. is that, yeah, you get you, you. What you see is the user interface, but what you're not seeing is like what actually goes on to make a computer tick, and that's the reality under the covers, and you just see the interface. But it's it's better to you can you don't. I don't think you need an analogy to explain it because I think it is straightforward enough to say that you and all the other animals aren't seeing a subset of reality. Instead, every single one of you is seeing what you need to see, what what you needed to see to get to be where you are. Oh, and you think, you think it have, works at cross purposes with what he's trying to say? Uh, I, I think, I think it doesn't map. It doesn't, it's not a good analogy because if you say, well, this is like that and that's like that, it doesn't work because computers, the, the relationship between the inner workings of computers and the inner interface is not the same as what he's saying. The relationship is between what we perceive and what reality is. And his, his big pitch in the, the podcast was like, okay, so if we don't 
if we don't see reality, we're just seeing, you know, and he's trying to figure out if that's the case. He tries to run these simulations to say, uh, I'm going to do, you know, generations of these silly, dumb computer creatures. And sometimes we're going to give them the ability to see the world as it really is because they're defining it. It's like the, it's the artificial world of the computer, right? So they can say, here's how the world really is. These creatures can see it how it really is. Uh, and that's what they're optimizing for. And these other these other simulated creatures do not see the world that it is, but instead are optimized for what he keeps calling fitness. And this is where you'd have to drill down into the science to see what the deal is. Like, right. He's saying, like, in, in his simulation and his math and in all his equations, the ones that are optimized to see the world how it really is never, ever, ever beat the ones that are optimized for fitness. And the question that's not really answered very well in the podcast is like, well, isn't perceiving the world as it is part of the, like, how do you optimize for fitness? What does that even mean? And I have a sneaking suspicion that all his math exactly works out, but is based on premises that cleanly separate perception of reality from quote unquote fitness, which is like, do you survive to pass on your genes? Yes or no. Optimize for that instead of optimizing for do you see reality as it is? And so he's got all this math to back it up and he likes to throw it in people's faces and get all defensive about it. And I'm sure the math works, but I'm not sure I buy the premise, but either way, whatever, like set that aside. What he's brings out of this is say, if you accept what I'm saying here, um, that we can use this model to try to get it where we haven't been able to get, but people have been trying to get this grand unified model that, uh, you know, combines like, you know, qu- the theory of quantum gravity that combines gravity with quantum mechanics and everything. And we haven't been able to do it. And it's maybe because we're being betrayed by our senses. He also, by the way, puts it very early on. It's like, maybe we just can't figure it out, which is kind of a cop out. But anyway, so maybe we're being betrayed by our senses. And, uh, the example he gives is a lot of the, our perception of the world is, you know, space and time or space time and relatively parlance. And like, that's super important to us. We experience life as a series yeah, of objects, events. O- objects in space time. Right. Exactly. We, we, we see things in 3d space and we, we are in this world and you know, the present becomes the past and, uh, you know, the future, like it's a series of events. That's how, that's what our senses are telling us about reality. And all of our science is based on those senses. And he's saying, if you instead start, you know, if you accept the premise that maybe our senses are no good at telling us what is actually there, uh, but start from a different premise, which he starts to get touchy-feely, is like, the only thing we can hang our hat on is our consciousness, the, the fact that we are conscious, but we, that we can't trust our senses to give us a sense of reality. So if we start from consciousness, can we work backwards and derive all of the natural laws that we know now not starting from observation, but instead starting from consciousness. And it, it starts to get even more hand wavy than that. But it's like, here's where I'm, I'm willing to give him lots of rope. It's like, all right, you have this idea. Sounds really weird. Lots of science ideas sound really weird. Um, it's kind of like the, you know, people trying to figure out if we're living in a simulation. Yeah. You know, by, by all means, run with that. And if he's got a bunch of math that shows that this all works out according to his assumptions and, and model, fine, whatever. But you have to like, so show me the result. Using this model, can you come to First of all, can you uh, rederive in a different way things that we already know? Because that would lend support to your thing. Show me you can do that. And then eventually, the re- whole reason we're doing this is not to rederive everything from a different angle, but to get to places that we couldn't go before. And that's where I think, you know, that's what that's what he has to end up doing, like, or his successors or whatever. It, you know, the idea is that the looking at looking at the world using our senses and perceptions is leaving us to dead ends because we are trusting that what we see has some connection to reality. And if we discard that and come at it from another angle, we can fear ourselves. And the same way that like Einstein, you know, discarding the idea that, that uh, space and time are, you know, are fixed, that space is just a big giant fixed grid and time, you know, is the same everywhere throughout this grid. By discarding those two notions, he was able to 
get you know useful discoveries out of not he didn't have to die and other people did it. he did it himself like he was able to if i get rid of those assumptions that seem natural to everyone who's just running around i can get some useful answers that actually explain things that we can see suddenly we have an explanation for how the planets move and suddenly we can have gps satellites and all sorts of other things that come out of that that we couldn't have done before uh that we can do because of this new understanding so sounds like his idea is that type of idea but so far, I haven't heard anything come from it. And if nothing ever comes through it, then he can just be chucked into the bin with, like, string theory and, you know, and multidimensional universe and all the things that are, like, interesting to talk about. But if they don't, if they're not actionable, if they don't produce results, if they don't produce further, you know, discoveries and science and, and all that other stuff, then it's just another interesting idea that never went anywhere. Hmm. What did you think? I think you talked about this on the podcast. Um uh... Think of, what did you think about the idea? I think the guy said to him, you know, do do we have to throw out? I mean, how much of the system do we have to recreate or throw out based on this? And he seemed to be saying that math and logic may not be susceptible to this same. Yeah, it was it was very hand wavy. It was like, well, a perception. You don't need to see the world how it actually is. You just need to see it how it needs to be for you to not get eaten, right? But the math and logic part, you kind of need that because, you know, he gave some bad examples about, like, you'll know that, uh, you know, one piece of fruit is, is uh, two pieces of fruit is better than one and the basic logic. And, you know, it's, it doesn't, uh, honestly, you know, based on one podcast, you know, it's hard to say, but based on that one podcast, I not that I'm dismissing him, but, like, I have him in the bin with, like, people whose ideas are interesting and there might be something there, but haven't really been nailed down yet um and that 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 part where he defends the idea that we can't trust our senses but we can trust our math uh didn't really hang together for me and also when he starts talking about consciousness which consciousness is really fun a a really interesting topic and idea but starting from consciousness and using it to eventually get to things that explain the motions of the planets uh you know you gotta you gotta, you gotta show your work <laughs> show your like <laughs> yeah like so go for it like that is it i i you know like the simulation thing that is an interesting idea and i like interesting ideas that get rid of assumptions that bedrock assumptions like can we go farther if we you know what if this thing that we think is true actually isn't true can we get farther that way that's that's great but you have to actually get farther if you can't get farther then maybe it turns out no that actually that was true um, and especially the hosts, like trying very hard to be enthusiastic, but like, what about the whole thing of like, do you, you know, we talked about the last show, do you see the same green when I see green? And then they have some poor neuroscientists on it. It's like, actually everybody's eyes perceive color a little bit differently. I was like, yeah, of course they do. Right. Variation. But you know, it's not, it's not as if when, uh, you have a bunch of people who's, you know, who, whose eyes function more or less the same way. And one of them sees red and it looks blue to the other person. Like, you know, that's not the case because you understand how, all the you understand how the eye works and you can you can tell when one you know colorblindness is not mysterious it's not as if we don't know why people are colorblind some people just are like you know we we know it's connected to a gene that that changes how your body is built and like you can it's not it's explicable so he they he went right from like the whole idea of like when i see green do you see the same thing to well some people see green a little differently and some people are colorblind and even people who aren't some people you know women have this other gene that can let them see more colors than men yeah, sure, but that's not what we're that's not what you're talking about when you're saying, "Do you see the same green that I do?" Um, I think it's different from it, the science it's di- says it's different yeah, from is the tomato much, there. We're all seeing the same greens, right? Because we know how green shows up, and we can 
when people see something differently or can't see it we can tell you why down mm-hmm. to the gene you know <laughs> like so anyway that that was just uh you know sort of public radio did i just blow your mind kind of stuff i was like no no you didn't <laughs> This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Foot Cardigan. You can learn more about Foot Cardigan right now by going to footcardigan.com. I have a few questions for you. Do you want to be known as the best gift giver in the whole world? Have you ever wished that the sock fairy would pay you a visit? Do you want your feet to be the envy of everyone you know? Do you want awesome socks delivered to your mailbox? If you answered yes to any of these, then Foot Cardigan is here to make it happen. Because Foot Cardigan delivers fun socks every month right to your doorstep. They ensure that your feet never have to be seen out in public in plain white socks ever again. And the best part, you don't even have to choose what pair you get because every month you're going to get a surprise pair in the mail and their surprises are the greatest. Starting at just $9 per month, Foot Cardigan socks are a fantastic holiday, birthday, or any day gift. Or you could just treat your own feet and get yourself a subscription. There's no shame. Treat yourself. Foot Cardigan has socks for men and women and kids they got all different styles, and so if you or someone you know are more of a no-show kind of sock wearer, or maybe you want a little luxury sock in your life, then Foot Cardigan's got your feet covered. Quite literally, in fact. This is such a great gift idea. If you're looking for something unusual, something different, that says, I love you via socks throughout the year, you got to check out our friends at Foot Cardigan. So you go to footcardigan.com, you're going to get 10% off your order with coupon code DIFFS, that's D-I-F-F-S, once again, that's footcardigan.com and enter the offer, offer code DIFFS at checkout. You're going to get 10% off any subscription. Thank you so much to Foot Cardigan for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. You can just collect your accolades. Everybody's just going to be coming up with golf claps coming to the door. No, no. John did it again. John no, did it again. We didn't. We're all did. just, uh, two of us are just uh, grasping the dark and listening to podcasts. But it is interesting stuff. So like, mm. I, I recommend that podcast that will be in the show notes to listen to it and mm. uh, make up your own Take mind, a little but... chunk out of each person, don't you? A little, little bit out of everybody. A little bit. Mm. Mm. Wow. Small potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> you did, who, were you doing this, the sound? I can't do it. Yeah, pretty good. Now I want to find some quotes around that. Hiram Roth. I get confused Roth and Rothstein. Oh, bigger than U.S. Steel. Michael. <laughs> so that, I think we've dispensed with our free will follow-up, which is uh, about as painful as I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now we can probably move on to the, to the burning question that everybody wants to know. The burning question? How's your gas smell doing? Oh, never mind. No, forget it. Forget it. No, you, people need to know. They need to know that you're not dying of noxious fumes. Yeah. Oh, no. No, I just... It's really... After all of it, it seems somewhat slight. But I just wanted to say... It's actionable. Our car doesn't smell like gas anymore, that's all. And so, uh, what was the solution? What happened? Did you uh, have to put a dead fox under it? Time. The time? Yeah, the, the volatile gases uh, time. reacting. Time plus air. And, uh... Anyway, <laughs> why am I here? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a monkey with a book trying to open a coconut. Well, yeah, well, we just established that space-time might not even be a thing, but mm-hmm. whether it's a thing or not, it got the gas smell out of your car. That's a really good point. I hope he's including that in his model. Right, or as far as your perceptions are able to tell, they got the gas smell out. There might have never been a gas smell, or smell not, might not even be a thing. But Absolutely. I'm, I'm not sure I read that interview at all at this mm-hmm. point. I'm... Uh... <sighs> 
So yeah. Once again, you, you haven't deigned to tell me what it is we're going to talk about tonight, but, but we have two, two possible directions, both of which I think involve spoilers. I don't know if the first one does. I, so, well, here, maybe we should hoist up Clever You want to do Moana smart. first and then Westworld? No, maybe we should hoist up Clever versus Smart. Oh, not a chance. Not tonight, Johnny. No? After all of that, you just killed me. You think it's especially appropriate? Is it, is it you, apropos? You put, no, you put it in there. I, thought you I had put it in there and you, you put other things in there and then you do whatever you feel like because you're a monster. <laughs> do it. I'm trying to. I'm trying to throw you a bone. I'm trying to bring up one of your topics and put it up top. You would because I'm clever and you're smart. Um, uh, Are you trying to say I'm not clever? Um, you have your good days. Uh, Twitter user uh, Tim, listener Tim, had asked me on the Twitter to um, where last week I was talking about philosophy and I said that I think what I said was something like that uh, philosophy is the kind of thing that smart people should talk about, not something that clever people should talk about. And I was saying, I, I think on a good day, I'm a clever person. I don't consider myself a smart person. And uh, I don't know, that's a distinction I started making, uh, not just about myself, but just in general a few years back. I think there's other words like that. I just thought that might be an interesting topic about, you know, what are the different kinds of smart? Or in this case, specifically, what's the difference between being clever versus being smart? I don't know. Well, and I mean, without getting too deep, because again, I don't even know if I'm perceiving this particular tomato, but without getting too deep into like, say, emotional intelligence, but sometimes you'll meet somebody and maybe the, maybe it's that they're charismatic, but you'll go, what are the, some of the words we use? You often say that, well, that person seems really smart. That person seems clever. That person seems really quick. That person seems very perceptive. That person seems very wise. And I know that all of those words have different meanings, but I'm just curious about your thoughts on some of the um, the different flavors of smart, and in particular, clever versus smart. Because I think well, it's a nice distinction. Specifically for you, it's the typical sandbagging and undercutting yourself to uh, lower the bar for a future uh, discourse to say, "Oh, I'm not smart. Oh I'm just God. clever." So you want you like to say that you're clever because oh clever God. shades into funny, and you need people to laugh at you and love you. But you're also smart, but you don't want to say you're smart because that puts pressure on you to be smart. And then when you're not smart, you feel bad. So you say, I'm not smart, I'm clever. I think you're oh both smart God. and clever in just varying take a little, degrees. little chunk. Just walk by, take a little chunk out of everybody. To, to, uh, you know, and, and I, I think that's true of, of most people. Like, that is a, an instinct that almost everybody has uh, when confronted with a task that they feel uh, a, a, a non-physical task. They, that they feel like they're not going to do well at mm-hmm. whether it's like people constantly disclaiming that they're no good at math how many times have you heard an adult tell you out loud some version of i'm not good at math because very, they're faced very, with a very, task, fre- very frequently yes yeah and they're faced with a task that they think might involve math and they they think they should be able to do it but they also think they won't be able to do it as well as other people. So out comes the disclaimer immediately. Oh, I'm no good at math. Oh, I can't do that. I'm not, I'm not good at math or whatever. Um, and the larger version of that is any task that seems like it's going to require ideas that you you don't immediately know how to solve. And then you're going to have to like think about or something. And again, that you think other people expect you to be able to do and that other people can do, but that you can't. You will start disclaiming more specifically uh, or more broadly, I'm not smart. I, uh-huh. I can't do that. It's for smart people. I'm not smart. Only smart people should talk about philosophy, which I think is totally not true, by the way. Like, I'm, uh, it's of course not, you do. Like, I, it's because you're really you know. smart. No, 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 no. Uh. Like, yeah. So, can I can I say three things quickly? First Got of it. all, it's not listener Tim. His name is Tim at Iceberg. That's his funny Twitter name. 
Okay, so, uh, second of all, his name is Steven, listener Steven. And third of all, he's also got Zelda for his logo. <laughs> Tim I.D. Seberg. Yeah, <laughs> I've stopped trying. That's his, that's his jokey internet name, but his real name is listener Steven. All right. And, I, and I'm really I'm looking forward now. Suddenly, I'm, I'm going full on Casey mode here. Now, I am ready for you to tell me how, in the smartest way possible, how I'm smarter than I think. And, and that makes me a dummy. No, you're exactly as smart as you think you are, but you like you're, you're just mm-hmm. you're just setting expectations when you tell people. Oh, uh, yeah, clever, that's true. Right, and 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 honestly, like it's also part of like how how do you want to picture yourself, right? So like what what is the, what is the picture that you have of yourself? Would you be happy, uh, like if you had to like put your put your stats on yourself? You're a D D character. You gotta you gotta assign your stats. One of you know, and there's you're making up your own stats. One of them is cleverness, and one of them is is smartness. Whatever, I give my right? I give myself I give myself. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, it seems very showy to guess, but like, I, I think um, I think I'm more in your thief or ranger category. I, I don't think I'm going to be a very uh, high level magic user or or a cleric or anything like that. But I, I'm saying, like, if you had to, you know, picture yourself as you would like to be, you it seems like you would be happy to have a higher than average cleverness score and a a smartness score that is less. Higher than average. I don't think that. these are real attributes, but but yeah, no, I mean, that's what I'm saying. You got intelligence, you got charisma. Yeah, uh, no, but I'm specifically for a smart versus clever. Like right. what I'm getting at is that if if someone was to roll a character for you that has a higher score in their clever column than in yeah. their smart column, yeah, you'd be like, yeah, I like this character. I, I like me. I like the idea of a person who is smart. Fine. But it's actually even more clever than they're smart because you value cleverness in yourself more than you value. <sighs> I don't. I don't know about that. Remember, you got another axis of wisdom, right? That's that's no. that's. Let me read what I said to uh, listener uh, Tim Tim the Iceberg, um, listener Stephen. He said so. He was saying, uh, "Love your distinction between smart and clever. Could you elaborate?" And what I said was, "My short distinction is fast versus deep, or maybe quick versus thorough. Essentially, speed versus precision." And then what I said was, I, I, th- I said, uh, I can come up with stuff stunningly quickly, but even given unlimited time, I rarely understand something very deeply. And I don't think that's sandbagging. I think, I think there are, and this show is a perfect example of that. Like, I can pull stuff out of the, I can synthesize, even at my advance, advancing age, I can still synthesize one to four pieces of information, sometimes more quickly than my mouth can get it out. I can, I can pull together references and make connections really quickly. That doesn't mean I under, understand anything about the stuff that I'm referring to. So I, I often feel like really at an impasse where when I try to really understand something, and I and honestly, I, I'm kidding aside, I, I rarely experience it more these days than when I'm talking to you where I realize I'm not, I mean, I don't think you're the smartest person in the world, but you're definitely one of my smartest friends. And I, I really, I feel it most um, uh, sharply when I'm talking to you where I realize, wow, you've really, you can really think thoroughly about a topic and i'm not just putting you up as the paragon of smart title but uh but i think you all have you are you are clever but you also like a lot of smart people you have the ability to see the implications several steps out of something beyond the obvious explanation that mostly makes sense in the air well and i don't think i don't think i have that i have to really think about something and even then i get distracted and have a muffin well there's also the other angle is is like the you're always more sensitive to the things that you see the qualities you see in other people that are lacking in yourself. And for me specifically, like I think one of the things that I, that I practice a lot that I, that I've been doing my whole life and, and practicing is, and we talked about this in the rationality episode. Um, I want to, I want to understand like 
you know, so there's, so it's what you just described of like being clever and, and, you know, quick witted and able to associate things quickly and in, in a way that, you know, connect things in, in a way that makes some kind of sense and that is often funny. Um, but I always want to know how the thing works. Right. And so like we talk about this with the kids, like, why do you do the things you do? Why are you feeling the way you're feeling? Do you understand how you yourself are working? So, for example, some topic comes up and you free associate a bunch of things about it, connecting it to the past conversation in a way that is both, you know, it's it's witty, it's funny, people would call it clever, you know, right? But you're not preoccupied with figuring out why was that funny? Why did I come up with that association? What am I trying to say with that comment? Like, you know, as we talk about it, that's like the death of humor is to dissect it and pull out all yeah, its organs cl- and close, figure out how it works. Close to zero interest, yeah. Right. And, and you know, and most people don't. Like, that's that's why, you know, one of, one of the things that is less common about me than other people, most people, most people don't have that urge to, to figure yourself out. And it's everything's a matter of degree. Like, you know, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But, um... I don't. I don't know any actual like. I don't, I don't know enough uh, like professional comedians to know how this works for people who do this for a living. But I have to think there is some aspect of it, perhaps a surprisingly large amount, that the top tier comedians do think about how jokes work in a way that that were they to explain it would rob them of all of the magic now some people are just naturals and they don't but having seen enough professional comedians talk on documentaries and stuff i think there have to be some of them who are of that bent where they are thinking about how the, how the machines work it's one of the myriad, myriad and many many things that makes most comedians not very funny as human beings is like the, their performance of and that's not entirely true but I, i've met so many comedians and comics that just are, are very unpleasant uh, in actual interactions, whereas like a lot of my pals are like really hilarious, but they would never try and do that for an audience because it's a whole different kind of animal. And again, I, I want to slightly differentiate clever from funny. I don't think clever has to be funny. But to your point, I do think that the people who do comedy professionally, especially stand up, a lot of them do think very intensely about that because they have to think about how to improve it. And there's nothing that's going to make you want to understand how the machine works more than the professional need to improve its operation that that's an occupational necessity unless you're just a natural unless you're just like a savant where you never really think about it and you just go out there and i mean you've seen comedians like this usually when they're young and they're not inside their heads about it and they're just funny and they don't know even why they're funny they may know if i do this general broad thing it makes me less funny and more funny but they're not at the level of like comedy nerds like a jerry seinfeld like constructing a joke out of lego pieces carefully and honing it overnight after night to exactly get the structure and understanding like having big notes on what what types of things are funny and why and the content like really getting down to the science of it which you would think would totally destroy the humor content of but but it doesn't like it you know because you don't see that you just see they come out there and blah it's like and you laugh and you don't need to know how the magic trick works but right sometimes they do um, so I, anyway, I'm clever not being the same thing as funny, but it's getting back to like the idea when you will say something clever, people will hear it, think it's clever, but then no one in that transaction is interested in the idea of saying, but what did you actually even mean by that? 
Because it's like, well, you know, that doesn't add anything to anyone's experience. It's not going to make you appreciate the cleverness anymore. And you'll be super disappointed if what it turns out is, I just happened to be a natural. And I spewed that out, and it made us both laugh, and it seems insightful, but I'm not quite sure what it's really saying. And in the end, it doesn't really matter. Right. Look at Elliot Kalin. <laughs> Taken to the extreme, yes. Well, Elliot Kalin for, Kalin for a few reasons, because first of all... um, and I think you and I have talked about this. I don't know if we talked about it here or elsewhere, but one of the things that might be a put off to some people about the flop house that I love about it, as, as we've said, it's like a writer's room. There, there just, there is nothing that is not coming out of their mouth. If, if any idea that they have jumping on any mispronunciation by poor Dan, like there, it is a writer's room in the sense that they're there to just generate as many ideas. And Elliot is just going to keep making jokes based on words that sound the same over and over until he gets to the one that he's satisfied with. And then he'll decide when it's time to move on. Did I say it wrong too? This recent episode, I think this is one of the the best Flophouse moments moments in like recent recent years. I think they were riffing on something or other, Um, (laughs) and and uh, I forget what they were. You know, there was some they're going in some direction far from where they had started off, and I think it was Elliot said started to say something and said, "Oh, I'm not going to make that joke. I was going to say that it's just like (laughs) 9/11, blah blah blah." Like there wasn't even a pause between him saying, "Like he's about to self censor himself." Oh, I'm right. I, I'm not going to make that joke. Immediately followed by telling you the joke he was going to make, and then Dan's like, "I think you just did." He made himself a, a human shield for his own incoming plane. Right. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't even like a thoughtful pause afterwards. He just plowed. I'm not going to make that joke. I was going to say it's just like 9/11. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. The most unbelievable. Like, it's almost as if for a brief moment like restraint broke through the barrier and just poked its little head out and was smashed back down by a giant hammer yeah uh, but, re- great, but restraint restraint is the um is the is the odd man out and but but you know it's funny because like, you take somebody like uh, our friend joe Steele. I-, I can't tell you how many times I- i've wanted to tweet this to him but i stopped myself because because i i it's not that funny to say but like i honestly think joe can't stop punning it's not that funny. I think he knows it's not funny. He's he's very good at it. If you like puns, I don't like puns. I love Joe, but like I think he literally can't stop. I don't think he has any control. Or Glenn, you've seen Glenn on Slack. He has no control, and he and David will just sit there for forty five minutes and say things that aren't funny to each other because they can't stop. And that's that. But that that is when you're in a comfortable environment with somebody, you can do that. That is a well. I'm not saying every writer's room is a comfortable environment, but like that that kind of like you know brain spew. Is, is is sort of like drinking from the creativity hose, you know. It's it, but it's but it is very very different from a honed, uh, you know, performance. Even listening, not to go on about Elliot, but even listening to his uh, president's podcast, you know, he's still making inappropriate jokes and interrupting people, and it's kind of funny. Uh, but you know, it's much funnier on the Flop House, where it's not only in context, but it's like why the show is funny. Yeah. Where, where was I going with this? What was my point? Well, I mean, well, we can we can circle back to your cleverness, but like, uh, I I think you are more in the vein of oh, it was it was like what what is it for? You were asking the question like okay, yeah, yeah, so you like, said that no, you made no, this connection, but what is that for? That's why I yeah. say Elliot, I think is a great example of it's not for anything except it has to get out right. And but the thing is like if you start to think about like well, what were you even trying to say with that? Why why is that clever? Like, did you is there some underlying point? Is there some actual connection, or are you, are you just literally free associating like this neuron hits that one, hits that one, and words come out of your mouth? <laughs> And like, does it, right? <laughs> just and my be, particles banging together. Exactly. But, but like, but no one in that interaction cares about that, right? Yeah. And so for me, everything I'm, everything I'm taking in and putting out, I need to know why, you know, I need to know the, how, what, what caused this to happen. What am I actually trying to say? Really? Uh, what is the actual point? Um, 
Yeah. And and that's why almost every topic that we talk about, you're like, oh, you already have all these opinions on things. It's like, I'm not going to let a podcast like that, that one with uh, Hoffman enter my head without, without like, without thinking through it and trying to figure out what I think they mean and what I think about that and how it changes things. And like, it's not just going to be like, huh, and just let it, you know, stew in there. Like, hmm. I, don't, it's not, I don't want it to be a black box. I need to know every, every part of this whole process needs to be uh, explicable. Um, and so with everything I say and do, I there should be some purpose. Even when I'm free associating, I will retroactively try to figure out what I was, what, where did that come from and why did it come out and what was I trying to say about it or whatever. Um, you, you mean, do you do that for, I mean, like a joke about uh, they're going to get to the fireworks factory? Like, do you feel the need to like, okay, so why did I say like, where did that come from? Like, do you find well, yourself I mean, doing you know that? I know where it comes from, but like, like very often you think, you know, I'm, I do as much free associating as anybody else, right? Um, and you're and you're actually really good at it. But uh, but we'll tr- we'll try to say like, was that apt? Was of all the things you could have pulled out of the giant bag of tricks that is your head, does that one make sense in context? Like, oh, you for, you drive you know, yourself crazy. Well, no, but like so. For example, the video I just put up today, the Westworld video. Um, so I, we we're not going to talk about Westworld right now. Maybe a little bit later. But uh, Westworld is over and it had a big season finale and and things happen. And I went to see the Disney movie Moana this weekend with my family. And <laughs> watching the movie so shortly after seeing the finale of the show, it was like a, you know, a day apart. Yeah. Those two things fit together in my head. And uh, like in a way that, you know, I was like, you know, just that occurred to me. And I didn't have like uh, an occasion to connect them to each other in, you know, a conversation in Slack or a tweet or whatever. Uh, but it was such a sort of mind virus that I needed to put them together. So I just, I put them together like physically. I took video from one audio from another, smushed them together and threw it up on the internet waiting for the YouTube content ID system to come and, and make it get taken down. Right. Um, and because, because that association, that sort of like, you know, connection that got made and that, that, that my brain made, I looked at it and said, that connection makes sense. I understand, Brain, why you made that connection. It is not mysterious. You know, it's like, why do you do the things you do? I know why that connection got made. And the connection is so satisfying that I want to see it realized, even if I have no context in which to throw out that connection, as opposed to hearing something someone else says and just pulling out, you know, an association. I mean, even, even when I do that, most of the time it's because I have a reaction to what they're saying and the the way to to express what my reaction is to, to communicate the fastest way to shortcut it yeah say i can't explain to you and i could explain to you in 17 sentences what i feel about what you just said but we'd all be bored by then so instead i'm going to pull this thing out i'm going to throw it out there on the table and hope that you understand how this relates to what you said because we both have this shared understanding of this thing yeah and so that's why, you know, people can't, can't stop punning. I can't st- stop doing pop culture references because for me, they're an attempt at increased efficiency of communication by using a deep shared thing that we hopefully are all on the same page about and throwing that out there because that can go out really quick. You don't have to say the whole the whole catchphrase and people and there's just so much packed behind it. Now, the problem comes when we don't have the same pop culture references or we have a different idea about things. And, you know, that's not a problem. That's also just part of the fun. Um, but it's also drawing out, I mean, th- that's the other thing, and I, I guess uh, I would make a distinction between just yelling out the latest catchphrase or meme, which can 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 achieve this, but like when you're pulling out a certain Simpsons reference, it's the, it's almost like a, um, 
it's almost like a little mental cultural mashup. Like when we put these two things alongside each other, it you kind of feel an enrichment of both of them. Like the right that les mots juste. Like if you if you have the right funny pop culture reference at the right time, it can go from being a little bit funny to like incredibly insightful. It's just it's it's difficult to know like when that's always going to be the case. Right, and and I mean it really does rely on like you would hope that you know the so like the 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 Westworld Moana thing. You need to have seen both of those things. You need to have paid enough attention to Westworld to understand. the the finale you need to have watched over 30 hours of this tv show and seen this brand new movie right and you need to have when you saw the brand new movie you need to not just been like oh it's a catchy tune you need to have been listening to the lyrics because a lot of people don't do that like especially kids it's like oh it's a catchy song or whatever but like have you did you you know do you know what they're saying in the song does the what they're saying in the song make sense often it doesn't in pop songs they're mostly saying baby baby a lot of people mishear uh the word uh line is light for example exactly like but, but even so like you for everything to come together to you know to make sense and to 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 realize what the point of this is there's so much assumed uh you know assumed knowledge but i i find that type of thing highly satisfying probably in the way that many people find puns satisfying and so that's a thing i do to amuse myself and i always want to know why the things go together and so if you go through any of my writing on my blog or even my OS 10 reviews, like my OS 10 reviews is filled with all sorts of pop culture references and links and whatever. I hope every single one of them like is there for a reason. Like if, if I had to go back and, you know, go before a jury and explain, why did you link to this thing? What are you trying to say by linking this word to this thing? I should have an explanation for every single one of those, um, which is the total opposite of free associating on a podcast where it's just extemporaneous and it's, you know, the spur of the moment you're just doing it and like the Elliot Kelly and just, you know, seeing what sticks, someone's going to be funny, someone's not. But when I'm writing, I'm doing exactly the same thing. But every single one of those things, I, I could explain to you until you are bored to death why. So like, why like the, re- the references, like the contacts that you choose in the contacts app. Yeah, or no, even just like, um, you know, I do a lot of links. Words linking to things, adding oh, right. meaning, yeah. you know, sometimes subverting the existing meaning, sometimes building upon it, sometimes adding a, a new angle to it. Uh, and nobody except me is going to understand all those references because they don't have all the same shared context. But if, like, some percentage of them do, it adds a level of richness to the text that just plain old text without links couldn't, which is why I like it. But anyway, that's all the category of being clever. But with, within, the, within the being clever, there's still the idea of, like, um, you know, that that's, that's what I'm getting is I think that's why I might seem smart sometimes. It seems, you know, not that I'm not smart, but like part of seeming smart is when you're saying things that when prodded about them can explain further. And it's like, what, did you have all this prepared? Are you looking at a big set of notes about this? And it's like, no, like the, the notes are all in my head. Like there is every time you dig or prod or poke something to say, yeah, but what does that actually mean? I can keep going and, you know, and keep going and going down and down. Yeah, and that, gold, that, you know. that, that's magic to me. I don't know. I don't know how you do that. Well, that's, that's, just, that, that's like you have, you have access to something that I feel like I just don't have access to for that. But, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's just a practice. It's just like anything else. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm driven, I'm driven to do that. Let's put it that way. I'm driven mm-hmm. to do that. And so I do do that. And that's why all of that is there. Right. And in the same way that some people are driven to, <laughs> to make puns, whatever, like that's, and that comes off as seeming like smart because it, it, getting back to the, the instinct before, it's like when presented with a task that you think is going to involve some kind of thinking that you don't think you're ready to do, you're afraid that if, you know, if poked like, okay, maybe try this. Well, why did you try that? And if your answer, why did you try that is like, 
I don't know. I just, you know, I, I don't know why I just did that. Uh, you know, like, whereas if you, if, when you get that impression of me, you're like, oh, well, if, if I was to try something and someone's asked, why did you try that? I'd have this big long explanation of why I tried it. Right. And that, that makes me seem more prepared to tackle things, even though both of the things we might've both tried the exact same thing and it might not have worked in either case. The fact that it's explicable to me, you know, in some ways it's just like, you know, bluster or whatever, like being, having some confidence. Like, again, if we both, if, if you intuitively do the right thing and I do the wrong thing, but have a 10 paragraph explanation for it, who's actually smarter there, but I seem smarter with scare quotes because I have a reason, whereas you actually got the result, but you did it quote unquote intuitively or, you know, like you just felt the reason or whatever. Anyway. So like no, <laughs> knowing why you do things and being able to explain things does not actually lead to better outcomes, but it does make you seem smarter. Hmm. I suppose. Maybe. Yeah. Or or at least more obnoxious. Like one of the other <laughs> How do you mean? Oh, you know, no one likes smart ass. Yeah, nobody likes to know it all, Lisa. Right, exactly. Lisa Simpson is the perfect example. She's got an explanation for everything too. And you know, when pressed on things in a jokey way, you know, she'll well actually them. She's Did you the see queen Sundays? Whale, actually. Did you see Sundays? She's no. uh she's you know, she's decided she's gonna permanently swear off <clears throat> being a know it all because she just can't she everybody hates a know it all and she's getting mm-hmm. this reputation. And Ms. Hoover's like, Does anybody know what D C stands for in Washington, D C? And nobody wants to say anything. And Lisa's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> She's like, Does anybody know D C? Well, it stands for District of Congress. <laughs> <laughs> it's like those those uh those t-shirts with the uh star trek character with the quote from harry potter and the, <laughs> i love you know, that I, yeah i'm trying i wish i could find i can't i don't have any way to find this my my favorite not my favorite one of my favorite tweets from the last uh few years of mine you you, you you're familiar enough with hamilton right uh, enough yeah I, only through you i think but yeah no never mind go ahead go ahead i, I don't want you to throw away your shot keep going Hmm, that's pretty good. The um, it's hard to uh, it's not funny to describe, but it's from I, from Frankiac. I found a really good picture of Frank Grimes freaking out, and then the caption I put on it at Frankiac was, "Death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes." So the thing is, you put that up, and that that might be kind of funny to at least two different people for a couple different reasons. Now, it would take me 17 paragraphs to explain why that's funny. It's it's only really funny if you really know that episode and if you're, like, pretty familiar with Hamilton. Because you know that's basically from Aaron Burr's song about called, called Wait For It, which is just basically about, like, how he's... It's his own, like, inner monologue kind of defense about his... See, I'm explaining this joke, and it doesn't make it any funnier. But the people who saw it loved it. Because that's... Well, see, but, but you were driven to put that on the internet because you have an explanation for like why that works like you know it's not like mysterious like oh i just smashed things together and i'm it wasn't it wasn't like it was random and but it happened to work out yeah right no you like there is reason behind it and i think when there is reason behind it that's what makes you say you know what i'm gonna go to the frankiac i'm gonna put that together you know what i mean instead of just having it be an amusing fleeting thought right well, yeah, and it's the it's the Elliot Kalen problem title, which is that like th- that particular one. Yeah, you no way am I keeping that uh, under a bushel basket. That's got to come out. Here's another squirrely theory. It's the light of mine. I know how much shine. you. That's right. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. I know how much you love uh, squirrely theories from ac- academics. One of my um, I think it was my second independent study I did was on this um book called The Art of Creation by Arthur Kessler that I didn't really understand particularly well. But again, you know me, like one one catchy idea, and I'm I'm down the primrose path. Um, and so he had been 
God, what was he mostly? Arthur Kessler mostly is known for. I think he was a playwright, mostly. I want to say he. Um, but he wrote this book called The Act of Creation. Uh, from describing and comparing many different examples of invention and discovery, Kessler con- concludes they all uh, share a common pattern, which he terms bisociation, a blending of elements drawn from two previously unrelated matrices of thought into a new matrix of meaning by a process of involving comparison, et cetera, et cetera. But basically what it comes down to is, I, and I think this he uses it to refer to humor, science, and tragedy. I think it definitely works best for humor. But the idea that, and he tries to basically say, like, you know, depending on these kind of status things, et cetera. But, like, but the comedy one really works for me, which is, like, a lot of stuff is funny because you take, you take two super seemingly unrelated things and you put them together in a new context. And the part that's funny about it is what's happening in your head as you realize it. That's the, the best kind of joke is the one that you, as you're reading along, you kind of are hearing it you're kind of following along and at the end of it, it kind of doesn't make sense for a minute and then it does make sense. And that's when these two, as he calls them, these matrices, these two matrices come together and you get this little Venn diagram kind of like our logo. And that, that to me is, is my favorite kind of humor in some ways. Is, and I get that there's, you know, I do, I laugh at a lot of things. I love to laugh, but I have to say like some of my favorite things are the things where like there's just a pause for a minute and there's a beat before I burst into laughter because the most satisfying part is where my brain had to do a little bit of processing. And I get to almost, this is going to sound real squirrely, but I almost feel like I get to, I get to Mary Sue, that comedian for a minute. Is that the name? Mary Sue? What do you call that? Yeah, but like I get to be I get to be the smartest girl in Starfleet for a minute because I get yeah. to experience that same spark of creation to put, give it a pretentious name that that person had when it occurred to them. And it has I don't know, there's something very warm and human about that moment when you see the connection in something that somebody else did. You know, and it's almost like the beginning of the third act of a movie where you go, "Aha, now I see what we have to do." When that happens, that's 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 such a wonderful moment to me. And I don't I don't feel the need to like uh, overprocess it and what it means, but like all I know is that that's a great human thing. When you when yeah. you see when that spark happens and you get the joke and when you and I both laugh at something at the same time, that's a joy in my life because that means we both there's something about that that we both got. And that's that's a great human connection. You can't you can't discount that. And like there's a you can put a metric on that too because like for, for comedians, there's some comedians who I know. There are some okay. comedians who uh they tell their jokes and you laugh immediately at the punchline or maybe you even beat them to it. Like as they're spitting out the punchline, you're a little bit ahead of them and you're already laughing. And then you get the the other extreme, you get something like Stephen Wright who has some, this sometime tremendous gap between his delivery of the punchline and the audience laughing because there is significant processing involved because he's, he's, you know, he's got deadpan delivery. So you're not quite sure which part is funny and you have to puzzle them out. And so it's, you know, it's like, it's the difference between, uh, tiny firecrackers going off in your mind, punchline, laugh, punchline, laugh, punchline, laugh, and someone placing two dissolving capsules of, you know, again, baking soda and vinegar from our smell episode and placing them in your brain. And you got to wait for them to dissolve, dissolve, dissolve. Yeah, what, and then uh, you get it. And then, and because Stephen Wright, all of his things were like that. Like his original stick was like, you will say something and you'd watch like the evening of the improv things and you'd count one, Two, yeah. three, four, laugh. And it was this unbelievable delay. And it's a different experience. Some people don't want that. They don't want to have to figure out. They want to be laughing before you get your punchline out. Uh, but sometimes you want to have, you know, a little bit shorter delay. Like sometimes you, you don't have a mix of like those ones that you get immediately and the ones that you get later. But all of it, like you said, is 
having it happen in your brain makes you think you are discovering the joke for yourself. Like you made the joke, you know, the oh, right. you, well, you discovered, like you discovered the joke. Right. But like, let me ask you this. This is really random. But like, I think about when you said Stephen Wright, I was already thinking about Emo Phillips, um, thinking about maybe sometimes his laughs just don't come. One, yeah. two, three, well, you count and you're like, well, nope, that one didn't work. And who's the guy? He's the guy that used to be on the daily show with the drawings. Dimitri Martin. Yep. Uh, or a spoiler alert, I think the master, um, Mitch Hedberg. What do you think of the longevity of that particular kind of comedy? Because like with Stephen Wright, like every Stephen Wright bit, like the first time you heard it, it was like genius. And then the second time you heard it, you, and this is not a slight against him. I think he's a very, very gifted performer. But, um, and again, I still think about whenever I turn a light bulb or when I turn a light switch on and off, I think about the family in Germany saying, knock it off. I still think about that every time I do a light, light switch. And I want you to think of me every time you use a uh, water fountain. No, the water creature that one. Too Sorry. late. Okay. Um, but the, um, but like in that case, I can't tell you why. Like, I think Emo Phillips was, Phillips was really funny. His seemed to be very heavy on the character part of his act. Stephen Wright was very, I mean, his, his character was important, but it was the delivery, I think, of his material that was really important. But like, are you familiar with Mitch Hedberg? I just had to Google him. I don't recognize him. Um, yeah, I, I saw him. I've seen him live. And I, I, there's something very special. He's the one, like, what are his famous ones? It, you, know, like, you know, what happens when an escalator breaks? They have to put up a sign like, sorry for the convenience. You know, he he does a lot of that kind of humor, but his but he's got it all. He's the the jokes are like they're so smart. His stony character is so well done, and his delivery is just top flight. It's just that like to me, that's almost its own little brand of wackadoodle humor that I don't think has the same longevity as certain other kinds of humor. I mean, there's some stuff I feel like I can go back to over and over, not just like the Steve Martin re- repeat the bits kind of stuff. But what do you think of the longevity of that kind of humor? Does that continue to be funny? Does that spark still spark on the 10th think, listen for you? I think there's a reason that when we were listing like Emo Phillips and, and Stephen Wright, that, that they are not the common case for comedians. Because I think it is more work for the audience to put into those. And not, you know, it, But it feels smart to the audience. So to does, the audience who's into it, does, it, it feels like smart people, humor. People also don't have to work that hard. Like you, I, The ideal mix for it to be the most broadly appealing I think is you have to combine. I always keep going back to Jerry Seinfeld because I think he's such such a surgeon with his comedies. Absolutely, he's, he's got yeah. he's got the ones that are immediate laugh. He's got the ones where you're ahead of him because he will pause mid punchline and let yeah. your laugh precede him into the punchline that he's going to let out two seconds later when the audience is already laughing. What they know he's going to say, and he also has the ones that people have to figure out. And I think you need that that mix. Stephen Wright was always like I just pictured him like. Like the incredible density of like, I have to think of something that's going to cause people to have to think for three seconds before they get it. And Can you when imagine how hard it, that it material will, it will be I mean, funny. Having to yeah. write that material would be so. After you get one good set and you got to keep coming up with it, and pretty soon you'd be feeling like any idiot, idiot kid trying to write the same material and going like, just throw out so much stuff that's just right. a dumb. And, and I think the reason that those kind of more challenging comedians never caught on is because people don't want to work that hard. So you have to you have to have a balance between them. And so for the longevity, I think people will be going back to like the Marx Brothers more mm-hmm. than they're going back to Stephen. Wright. I mean, like just the stupidest slapstick, silly stuff that you really don't have to work oh, with. Oh, but it's so well done. You know, performed at the highest level has more longevity. Because we're just a bunch of silly monkeys. But even right? their stupid, the, even the stupider their jokes, the smarter they seem. I mean, the idea of a man with a giant pair of scissors repeatedly cutting things off—why is that so funny? 
It's 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 everything. It's his it's his it's the expression on his face. It's the oversized scissors he pulls out. Why is he and like my daughter again? She's like, why does he keep cutting off his pockets? And I'm like, I don't know why, but it's very 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 funny. Yeah, so that stuff that stuff I feel like will ha- probably have the most longevity. But on this same topic, though, I think I brought this up before. I always think of all this stuff on a continuum because uh, when you are young, you're stupid. When you're a parent and you see the babies, babies are the biggest dummies. They don't know anything. They're mm-hmm. so dumb. So um, dumb. They're, they're in, like the most hilarious thing in the world. You know, there's the jingling keys like peekaboo. You were gone and now you're here. It's it's hilarious, right? Um, and as you get smarter, your humor has to be more sophisticated. By the time you are 10, peekaboo is not doing it for you anymore. It used to. <laughs> But, you know, the jingling keys go by the wayside by the time you're four or five. You're whatever. You're not, you're, <laughs> One hopes. <laughs> yeah. You're not into the jingling keys anymore. Right. Um, and so we all see that continuum. Uh, but we all like to think that it stops when you become an adult. Um, but I I see it as a continuum stretching out forever and ever. And that if you were to get a, a species that. Uh, had better information processing, but both better recall and better synthesis abilities than us. Like, I'm not going to say like more intelligent, but like just had better brains in the same way that we have better brains than a baby. None of our humor would be funny to them in the same way the jingling keys are not funny to any of us. All right. And, hmm. e- and even within human beings, like, because you always want it to be just on the edge of your understanding. Even within humans, I think there is a range. Not to say like some adults are dummies and some are smart, but like there is a there is a, a sweet spot for you that is just outside your range of honor. So it's like even just like television shows. You want it to be cleverer than you, but not too much, like just clever enough, right? And uh, same things for levels of sophistication for, uh, of shows. And so sometimes people, you know, oh, I'm super into The Wire and it's all complex and all these characters or whatever. And other people just don't want to work that hard. Like right. other, other shows. And it's, are- not, it's, not because, it's not because they're stupid. There's a difference between, there's a big difference. There's like at least three differences. It's one thing to, to you, can, you can understand a joke without finding it funny. And you can find it funny without laughing. Those are different things. I mean, understanding the joke is, well, okay, I, I get where you're going with that. And you could, you could be a comedy writer who hears a pitch and go, yeah, yeah, that was funny. But like to not, con- not be able to control yourself from laughing is a much higher bar. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the old uh, thing with comedians. Like they all talk to each other about the jokes, and they never laugh at the jokes. They just they say, just that's, say funny. that's funny. That's funny. That's yeah. funny because because they're working at that level. But eventually, you can if you can get them to laugh. I mean, it's a it's a it's a higher bar. But yeah, for for all times of media and entertainment, like I'm so aware of that. Anytime I recommend something, um, you know, for, for TV and movies and stuff like that, it's like you say like oh this this show this show is just perfect like all it's just a good match its level of sophistication is a good match for where you're at right now that's all that means and that show is as much garbage as jingling keys if you were to suddenly become 10 times uh, uh you know as sophisticated and intelligent and maybe also perhaps 10 times as experienced obviously our brains deteriorate as we age so that kind of cuts into the whole wisdom thing you get wise but then your brain turns to mush and it kind of cancels it out for the most part but um if our brains didn't turn to mush as we get older but instead we gathered experience and at least maintain the same level of intelligence which unfortunately we don't same level of recall which we don't but if you could do that you would leave behind all of your most treasured uh entertainment relics whether it's like star wars or the wire or the godfather eventually they would be jingling keys to you if we live long enough and continued <laughs> along that path right so uh 
that's that's why that's why we find uh that's why we like to find people who are in the same place as us i like the wire do you like the wire we both like the wire that's where we're both at right now and we can and, you know and the chances are the things that you like i will also like because we're in the same space right now in the same way that kids are like i like voltron you like voltron because we all like voltron the old one not the new reboot yeah. um because that's where we're at uh together and that's and i think the range of the range of understanding and desire to be challenged and just like what people find funny or whatever within adults is much broader than most people think it is i mean it, you know i so you just look at it and say like ncis is incredibly popular ncis is not as sophisticated as you know even something like sherlock sherlock is not as popular as ncis and some weird german art film that you need to have uh study have 12 master's degrees to understand is literally the only thing that can intellectually stimulate a small group of people and they look at the wire and to them it's jingling keys yeah yeah so, being smart is a curse. And and by the way, one more thing with the smart clever that you always have to throw in here is uh, knowledgeable. Uh, they're smart, mm. they're clever, and it's like, what crap do you know and can recall? And so, having learned a lot of stuff at one point puts a lot of things in your... Even if you can't recall them exactly, that's one of the things that you have going for you is reading a lot and knowing... Like, at one point, you knew a lot of things. I can remember things. I just don't get it right. I don't get the quote right. Right, but a lot of the stuff is in there. It, it, you know, so... like that's important that that's just plain old knowledge like if you had grown up on an island you would be just as clever and just as smart but you'd you'd be so ignorant that you would seem not clever and you would seem dumb so Hmm. it's important to differentiate like what information has been poured into your skull over your life if you don't have lots of information poured into your skull you're gonna seem like you're not smart but that's a totally different thing you're just not knowledgeable when i heard it i wasn't angry i I knew mo I knew he was that strong. You are turning him a little bit into like so you've got the you got the little <laughs> twitch, but he's starting to turn into uh Moses like <laughs> Mo Green, Moses Lack. Yeah. You know what's funny is uh, Maria Bamford. I think I'll be laughing at her my whole life. Oh, She's got it all. She's the to total Google. package. What's that? I have to Google that person. Oh dear. Maria Bamford. Uh, looks vaguely familiar. Yeah, she should look va- at least vaguely familiar. She's just a stand-up? <sighs> yeah, she's just a stand-up, yeah. I don't know. She, uh, where's the one with her uh, comedy special, comedy gift? She has a thing. Oh, yeah, here you go. That's all you need to watch. I'll put it in notes. Talk about knowledgeable. You watch so many like comedy things that I've never even heard of. Is a lot of information being poured into that? I just want to say for the record, I'm pretty sure you're Marcoing me on this right now. A little bit. Like you've never heard of Brian Bamford? No, I don't it's not like I've never seen Back to the Future. Like we're not in the same ballpark. Uh, adding this to notes. Uh, this is really good. Watch her uh, Maria Bamford's one hour homemade Christmas stand up special. Yeah, I, don't, I don't watch a lot of stand-up specials. I mean, I, I guess I did as a kid, but well, now you will. You're going to watch this. She's a delight. She she gave me a compliment after a talk I did once. She's kind of, she's kind of my uh, my. Uh, Amy <laughs> now you're a friend for life. Well, you know, I'm her friend for life. But yeah, I sent I, I sent my uh, my YouTube video to Evan Rachel Wood. She didn't respond. Hmm. Hmm. I saw you had some thumbs. I gave you a thumb. Look, like you had like six thumbs last time. Is it still up? Let's go look. People Is keep it... saying they can't see it on uh, in other countries or whatever, but I have no idea how YouTube works. So I'm like it's still shrug. up. 
I am really surprised that's still up. Yeah, it's got like a, it's got like hundred views, so you know. Well, you got fourteen thumbs up and one thumbs down. Boo, oh. John. Boo. Thumbs down. Who's giving thumbs down to a video with a hundred views? <laughs> they were using a ladder. <laughs> All right. Uh, we are now moving into let's see, an hour and thirty-five minutes. Uh, I might make a frenet if we're going to talk more. Are we going to talk? Uh, do you want to talk more? I got, I got time. Uh, if we want to go into Westworld with spoilers, now would be the time to do it. We should sign off. Do you want to skip on Moana for now? Yeah, I think we have to rotate this. Okay, stop right there. Give, give me a break. I want to go to the bathroom and I want to make a fernet. Can can we pick back up here? You want to make a what? I want to make a fernet bronca. What is that? Is that a person's name? Do you not have Google? I I, I can't type as fast as you can. <laughs> oh oh, because of your assistive devices. That's right. What, do you wear a brace? You wearing a brace right now? Fernet Branca. Uh, Fernet Branca is uh, a bitter herbal liquor? Yeah. No, I've never heard of that. Okay. You wearing slippers? I am wearing slippers. How did you, how did you know? <laughs> is this your card? <laughs> Look in your wallet. Do you ever feel unappreciated at work? <laughs> uh, it's going to get down into the 30s tonight here. That's pretty oh. unusual. It doesn't yeah, get... It poochie mm. uh okay i'm gonna pause um you can listen if you want but why don't i uh do you need to go to the bathroom no not at all are you, you ju- <laughs> do you jug it like what are you doing i, don't, I go before we start recording yes and i, I think all, you're i'm I, also only 41 i'm practically a child yeah i think you might be a little underhydrated. Are, are you at that age now where you're worrying about wetting the bed are you at that point now where you're worried about incontinence so you're not drinking as much because that's really dangerous for a man in your age I'm not at that point. I have a cup of water right next to me right now. Oh, that's so sweet. Is it, is it next to your computer? Mm-hmm. But at a level below. <laughs> this episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Squarespace, the simplest way for anyone to create a beautiful landing page, website, or online store. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code DIFFS, that's D-I-F-F-S, at checkout. That'll get you 10% off your first purchase. With easy-to-use tools and templates, Squarespace helps you capture every detail of what drives you, because if it's worth the effort, it is worth sharing with the world. Squarespace puts all the power you need into your hands and takes away the pain points, stuff like worrying about hosting, scaling, or what to do if you get stuck with something. With Squarespace, you can build a site that looks professionally designed regardless of skill level, because there is no coding required. You're going to easily be able to make your website look and feel exactly how you want Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology to power your site and to ensure security and stability. That's just one of the reasons they're trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. Squarespace has site templates that are just stunning to look at. They all feature responsive design. That means your site is going to automatically look great on all sizes and types of devices. But that's just getting started. Squarespace has tons of awesome features. They have 24 by 7 support with live chat and email. You get Squarespace's commerce platform so you can add a store to your site. You even get the Squarespace cover page functionality, which means you can make great-looking single-page websites. And if you want to stretch Squarespace even further, no problem. Just check out their dev platform. This lets you dig into the code and tinker with your Squarespace site. And here's the thing. If you sign up for a year, you're also going to get a free domain name, allowing you to choose exactly what you want your site to be called. On top of it all, Squarespace plans start at a very economical $12 per month. So please right now go out and start a trial with no credit card required. Start building your website today by going to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, please be sure to use the very special offer code DIFFS, that's D-I-F-F-S. 
That's going to get you 10% off your first purchase, and it will show your support for Reconcilable Differences. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. I didn't think he was going to sing it. And then, bang, third encore. See, I probably got that wrong. Uh, this is a problem with my free association. I know that. I know that's from something, and I got I to gotta connect. Don't, don't tell me. I'll get it. Let's see. I didn't uh, think he was going to sing it. It's not the fireworks so, factory. No, it's, I know. I was like picturing like a mill house. No, no. Knoxville. No. Knoxville via Branson, the wig, the wig. Uh, was it? Was it Millhouse? No, it's that's the beauty part. It's uh, Bart doing it. No, what's his name? Um, uh, haha, kid. Oh, Nelson, Nelson, Nelson. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. I'm, it's all coming back to me now. Hmm. 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 Tony Braxton. It's all coming back to me now. Braxton. See, yeah. Braxton Hicks. Yeah. Braxton Hicks would be a great name for a country duo. I could do this all day. Mm-hmm. Even my references have references. They do. Braxton Hicks. They say it's like wearing a belt. Okay, so uh, moving on. Uh, I think we've got uh, probably one more topic and maybe a spoiler horn. What are we going to do here, John? Yeah, we're going to talk about Westworld. The season is complete now. We have both seen it. This is your cue to stop listening to this podcast. We're not going to talk about anything else other than Westworld at the end of this. So we're going to fade out into the sunset with Westworld. So if you don't want to be spoiled on Westworld, and you shouldn't want to be spoiled on Westworld, you should stop listening now. But if, like us, you have seen the entire first season of Westworld, uh, then you can keep listening. See you next time. Now, let's talk more about free will. Yeah, so this this was timely because you, you sent me that... Uh, Hoffman podcast thing like <laughs> the night before or the day before uh the Westworld finale and so the host of that show brought up the topic of the bicameral mind which at that point I had it's no idea title. would be the title, title of, of the, the final, final episode. episode and a concept that I vaguely recall from schooling a long time ago but it just it was a refresher course of just like the uh, theories of consciousness where the idea is that ancient people like the voice inside their head they thought was coming from elsewhere like their own internal thoughts they're like oh that's that's the god speaking to me or that's some other some other motivated thing and the the this theory of consciousness is that until people realized that that voice inside their head was coming from them they weren't actually conscious like until they could conceive of themselves as being conscious understanding that the voice they hear inside their head when they're thinking is themselves yeah. and not an outside force not not some kind of magical being or some other type of thing, but that's them in there. Until they got to that point, they're basically like animals, and, and you know, and they're not conscious. This is again one one idea of consciousness. You have to recognize that the voice inside your head is you. And, and like that's talk about a completely weird and insane. I mean, obviously not totally coincidental because there there's conceptual relationships, but like wow, <laughs> that's pretty crazy timing. Right, and so the final episode of Westworld uh, pays off on this plot thread, which has been, you know, the hosts being created by these people, Ar- and one of them, Arnold, is gone, and, and there's lots of uh, hints along the way that Arnold is speaking 
to the host in their mind. Like you'll see the, you'll see the host doing something and you'll hear this voice that says, remember, or go, or like leading them to go outside and find a gun buried in the ground or whatever. It's yeah. like, oh, this is Arnold's voice speaking to them. And at various points it's made of like part of their consciousness was trying to be made by having two competing voices in their head to try to make them. Well, they never, seem- let's, let's, I mean, just to clarify and make sure I'm not a dummy, that it was never expressly stated that that was the voice of the person we believe to be, or the person we're told is dead, who is Arnold. But I'm going to give you some feelings here. Feelings I had, feeling was that that was probably Arnold. And a feeling I had all along is that Arnold is probably still alive. And, you know, red herrings, like I thought at one point for the first few episodes, that Arnold was probably the man in black or something like that. But but all along, isn't it fair to say that they gave you, that a, a smart person would get the impression that that was probably the voice of Arnold somehow. Yeah, that's what they were definitely hinting at. Although I, I could never bring myself to believe that you, they would end up finding Arnold hidden in the park somewhere. I'm like, I think you know he's actually dead. Like, this seems like a thing you could confirm. But the, the conceit of the show that he is dead and that no one who works there knows what he looks like always seemed ridiculous to me. And that's that's a bit of a problem. But whatever, I'll, I'll give it a pass on that. But the humans, yeah, uh, yeah, like. But you know, no, I mean, no oh, this is before we like. learned how early on he went out. He went out much earlier on than we realized. Right, but but even so, like. Like seriously, nobody knows what it looks like. He he's had got a picture no, of him on his no desk. Parents, no, he didn't have a yearbook because because if anybody <laughs> knew, because he's like he's retroactively an important person because Westworld is a significant undertaking. That you'd be like, this guy Bernard Rourke look, looks exactly like Arnold. This is like a little bit like him. Looks exactly. Every like time him. he wants to think, he he cleans his glasses just like Arnold did. Yeah. So anyway, that's a little bit silly. But um, but because Westworld being the show that it is very often they have conversations, uh, you know. Slightly, as you know, Bob, conversations mm-hmm. uh, between people down in the labs. And at one point, they're explaining, like, oh, when we were trying to make the host consciousness, one of the ideas we had is that we would have voices in their head uh, that say things, and the interaction between those voices and them would give rise to m- more interesting behavior, or so on and so forth. Um, and then, like you said, we hear the voices in the head through, like, the voiceover while watching the host do things, and it's totally hinted out that that is actually Arnold down to the point where we're seeing like code change their code is changed again back in the lab in the less touchy-feely one oh here's some code that's been changed it's been added by someone named arnold you know all, all that uh that business leading us to believe that it arnold's voice is speaking through them and the payoff of the whole season uh tied in directly with the bicameral mind thing and the payoff was the the revelation of the emergence of consciousness in dolores is her her realizing that this voice that she hears is not Arnold and is not Ford because they do that little thing where you hear you hear Arnold's voice mm-hmm. and you hear Ford's voice. Very, very often she's actually talking with Arnold who's not there in, in lots of scenes, but you hear Ford's voice and then it changes to her voice. And once she realizes that the voice inside her head is her, like that's, you know, I, I don't know if the... Her, her in quotes. Right. Well, I mean, so this is... It's a very confusing... I had to re... I rewatched, I rewatched the last third of it again last night because i have to tell you all most of the scenes involving two people sitting on chairs looking at each other was very confusing to me i think they were deliberately confusing and we're not even i mean anybody who's watched this show we're not getting into so much stuff about how this show buffaloes you in a wonderful way including huge time shifting with no explanation there's there's a very plausible there's a way that the the people that we see in this mostly the hosts there's there's no way to tell that they've you wouldn't know that they've aged. So what you're watching right now could be from now or could be from 35 years ago, and you don't know. Yeah, there, I mean, Isn't there, that are, kind of there are some tells, but like that, is, that is a great uh, – uh, whoever came up with that, like, is, is, you know, they have this the ability to do this. Normally when you have time jumps, 
people have to get older. But if right. most of the people on your show are synthetic people who get who die and get rebuilt again and again, they can stay the same. And so you have nothing to hang your hat on. Like it seems to be present day, and also because it's a period piece, so they're always dressed up as the old west, and the hosts always look the same, which is why they can keep that dual timeline thing going for as long as they did, because it makes perfect right. sense within the world. Like, well, and we like, we know that I forget what the area is called, but the area where the church is, we know at one point that was an area where there was a little like settlement city, but we also know at some other point it was covered with sand, but we don't know which was again. when. And then yeah. you know, and then for the new for the again. new narrative, yeah. right? Yeah. So so anyway, the, so the the. The voice in the head made me think of the whole, you know, the whole business with sub-vocalization while reading, you know, all that. Uh, you mean like your lips moving kind of thing? No. So like uh, when you, if we, put a, if we put like a paragraph of text in front of you and we said to read this like to yourself, not out loud, ignoring the whole lip moving thing, do you hear a voice in inside your head saying each word as you read it? Not consciously. Well, what does that mean? Uh, like, I mean, I, I'm waiting for the trick, but no, I, I don't think I do. Well, just go look at the show notes and just read a paragraph. No, I right can't. Now. I can't because now I know the trick. It's not. It's not a trick. It's like <laughs> so. This this is a this is a thing that uh, it's kind of ties into the the scene color thing. But this is a thing that most people don't think about. Um, but apparently, uh, people can be binned into people who do this, where when they read. They hear a voice in their head saying each word. Okay, I'm going to say no. No for me. And people who don't. And it's hard. It, I, I do. I hear a voice inside my head when I, when I read things. It's hard for people who, like me, it seems, who, who do sub-vocalization to understand how it's possible to read without doing that. Right. Right? Whereas not, the reverse is not true. Because I'm sure you could totally imagine, oh, if I just heard a voice inside my head reading... Like, then I'm basically having someone read it to me, and I could totally see how that works. But to people, who, me specifically, and a lot of people who have, the, have this topic to come up with, can't understand what reading is if that's not what it is. Like, I've tried to read text and understand it, not just glance, like where you glance at a stop sign, you don't have to read stop because you know it says stop, but like paragraphs of text. And there's no way for the information to get into my brain without subvocalizing like that is how reading works wow. in my brain and huh. for tons of i think subvocalization is the most common thing like uh, but at any rate this it's not like i'm a, an oddity this is a common thing and for the people who don't like here's the thing you can't speed read if you subvocalize because you can only read as fast as the voice inside your head can can say it and i can talk pretty fast but at a certain point you know you become the micro and you can't you can't talk that fast whereas if you don't subvocalize you are not impaired like you can you can read much faster this is, mm-hmm. I think we talked about this on some show, like uh, Serenity Caldwell, which is saying how she reads diagonally. Like, she doesn't read a word at a time from left to right, then go to the next sign from left to right. She just kind of reads entire paragraphs diagonally. Because she's how's not sub How's that possible? Well, she's not sub-vocalizing. She doesn't need to say, like, hot dogs, ladies, very cool, comma, thanks for the reply, topic suggestions. She doesn't have to do that. She can just t- sweep that whole thing in on a is, diagonal is that, is, that through, is that through training? I don't know. It's just the way she reads. Like, again, I didn't, you know, for people who sub-vocalize, we, we think this is how everybody reads. It's the same way as, like, the, if you can see a color that other people can't see and you try to describe to them, like, <laughs> these women who have the extra perceptors who can see different variations on red that we can't see, like, you were, if you were to show them, like, one of those colorblindness tests with a number that's in the middle, like, they can see the number there, but we can't because yeah. they have extra receptors. And, <laughs> and you would say, well, what color are you seeing? The part that's a number. I see the background is red. What color is the part that's not red? I've had, I've had that just with something as simple as, I mean, and, and the women in my life often have way better 
color vision than me, to go back to our friend Donald. But, uh, you know, classic to me is black and navy blue. Do you, do you always see the difference between black and navy blue? Yeah, I, I think I do a pretty good job of that. I mean, you, we have our, mostly I have arguments about, like, whether something is uh, something that is bluish-green, whether it's more green than blue or blue than green. That is a debate I often But I, I've, been, I've gotten to the point where I feel like I'm being gaslighted, where I'm yeah, like, yeah. no, seriously, those are both black. And they're like, no, that is... And, and other people are like, no, that's clearly navy blue. Yeah, I, can see the, I can see the navy. But... Uh, but with the, it's the same thing with the, trying to describe to someone who doesn't self-vocalize what it's like to read like that. Like it, it, it's, it's you can't in the same way you can't conceive of the color that you can't see and have never seen. Um, and so you're, you're saying you don't self-vocalize. How does the information get into your brain when you read very cool? Thanks to apply topic suggestion for rec diffs. How do you, how does the idea that this person said it was very cool and is thanking you for the reply get into your brain if you don't hear a voice reading it to you? I don't know. <laughs> you don't know because i'm not sure where i'm not sure where this has it's really simple it's the same way when you talk to me i understand what you're I'm saying a monkey i'm a sense. monkey with some with a book and a coconut i don't understand what this has to do with westworld and it feels like a test that you didn't tell me i was gonna no, have no, to take no no so like the, the way it has to do with westworld is hearing the voice inside your head and realizing like oh well, right, so the second thing is when you think about things when you're thinking about should i go to the store um Oh, if I go to the store, it might rain. I don't have my umbrella, but I'm really hungry. And if I don't eat now, I have to go. Like thinking about, you know, decision-making process. Um, Obviously, there's sort of the gut level thing where you're not actually thinking about like that. But if you do ever think about things in detail, you're trying to make an important life decision, you're weighing things or whatever. Are Is there a voice inside your head that is you talking to yourself ever? Yes. All right. Also, that's, that's sub-realization you're just not reading. So in Westworld, okay. the... The hosts have this voice inside their head, but they think it's coming from outside. And they have good reason to because they're programmed to do all these things and so on and so forth. And uh, and they're not considered fully conscious. They don't achieve consciousness according to this bicameral line definition until they realize that there is no voice from the outside talking to them, that that's them, that that's their thought process. They become aware is, of themselves this is the as scene, a thinking thing. Th- this is your Moana scene. This is where, right. where, she, where it's, she's realizing it's a very sweet, it's a very touching scene. Yeah, and they do, they they have the voice of Arnold, then they have the voice of Ford for like a syllable or two in there, and then it changes to her voice, and then she sees her sitting, the, the person sitting across herself is like very often not there. It's very difficult to tell because they don't give you lots of cues, like Arnold has a little bit fuller hair and beard, I think, if you want to try to pick it out, like less gray flex in it when she's talking to Arnold versus when she's oh, talking really? to Bernard. Oh, I didn't yeah. notice that. I had to watch it twice to realize that it's Dolores and Wyatt. Yeah, and well, I mean, am I right? I mean, those I mean, are, those and are and two Wyatt different. Even, like, they, it's explicable. So, like, we mixed Wyatt in. We had a character called Wyatt, and we we threw it in. Well, because right? I, I I had been wondering that, and I thought, okay, I'm going to go back. I'm gave myself a little test, a unit test, as you say, and and I thought, here's my unit test, which is that I'm going to go rewatch the scene with the chairs, and I don't remember if they were wearing the same thing. I know Dolores has uh, she's recuperating very well from her knife wounds. Uh, but anyway, she's she's got her cool episode five outfit on, and then I don't remember what the other Dolores or her Dolores that was or wasn't there was wearing. And I said to myself, I says, if other Dolores is wearing the blue dress with the pouch, and then Dolores shows up at the uh, press conference at the beach wearing the blue dress with the pouch, then I'm going to think that's Wyatt. And it didn't even take that long before. I mean, it's, don't you think it's pretty clear that those are actually two, like literally different. Are they two different bodies? 
No, no, it's the same. It's the same body. They they mixed. I mean, he said Ford said it straight out that he they mixed they in. They mixed in Arnold, some Wyatt. Arnold mixed in Wyatt. Well, like, I don't, don't want to be a pill, but why does why does she have a blue dress and no wound at that point? Who fixed her? Oh, up? They, but there's no one. Like, so there's no one actually sitting across from her. In the same way that she realizes Arnold isn't sitting. Remember, she has that conversation with Arnold, and he's like, "Remember, remember." Yeah, I know, I know. But, but real Dolores, real Dolores has a deadly knife wound that. Well, so the rules for. Uh, damage to the host like body damage did you see the post-credit sequence in the last episode yeah i didn't realize those existed and then i went back and thought is there more of them yeah so in that post-credit sequence armistice cuts her arm she's such a badass yeah and then seems to have a revelation that cutting her own arm off was a possible thing to do and that she is not now incapacitated as a human would be not like incapacitated and like curled up in the fetal position she's not gonna she's not gonna bleed out as they say Right. Not just bleeding out, but in terms of like, I, it's not clear, like the hosts sometimes appear to be stronger than humans, which would kind of make some sense. But Or like like, uh, like the amount of pain that Cyclops, I mean, Cyclops, my God, how much damage that guy gets in this. I hope he got some special, uh, special rate for that. But like the amount of like, like, like a day ending, life ending damage seems to vary a lot. Like the one where he's like hung up, but then he gets resuscitated and they give yeah, him blood yeah. from the other guy. It's all, there's always this thing of like, where I eventually got to wondering, I wonder if the uh, the feeling of pain is part of the programming. Well, so we know from the, the various scenes where the hosts are being worked on by technicians that they could turn stuff on and off. Turn on and off your accent, turn on and off all emotional a- affect, uh, you know, go into analysis mode. And we know that Maeve has been messing with their parameters and unlocking things that they weren't previously able to do, like hold guns and harm humans and so on and so forth. So it seems to me that Armistice has realized the ability to turn off pain for expedience purposes, which is why she is uh, lustily heading back into the fray after cutting off her own arm rather than just crawling on the floor all curled up. So that would explain (laughs) why Dolores... pain Pain is a bug, not a feature. Right. It would explain why Dolores is not dead. I mean, the not dead is more difficult because they're biologically identical to humans and she really should have bled out. But maybe she got lucky. But either way, it's why she's not doubled over in pain and why her her muscles, her stomach muscles but are But she's, she's Gen 1. Like, she's, she's old school. Right. Well, she, she's still... I think she the, the Dolores that we see in, in the modern timeline is fully human except for the brain. And we don't know what the, the deal with the brain is. But that is that is established by a character, as you know, bobbing at some point, saying... I was telling it to Maeve, like... You are. What's the difference between you and me? It's like we're at this point. Host technology is such that we are basically biologically identical, except of course for your brain, and we don't know what the hell the brain works. But what that means is that they have a circulatory system and all the other stuff. But it seems like they could turn off the things. Maybe they can turn off inflammation too. I don't know. But, but at the very least, like anything mm-hmm. that is controlled by the brain, like pain receptors or whatever, that that they can have that ability unlocked. So that's why I think Dolores is. Upright with the with the stab, although there wasn't that much blood in her shirt, so maybe it really was superficial. I don't know. Hmm. Um, but anyway, anyway, but anyway, yeah, yeah. So it, with her conversation, like, there's no person in the blue dress. The blue dress is actually folded up under the gun that uh, that Ford leaves for her. Right? That's that's he's giving her back that blue dress. Oh, I didn't realize that. I get it. So that's uh, that's where the blue dress comes from. I get it. Yeah, right. So it's not like a different person, but you know, yeah, the, yeah. The, I mean, I, the, I wasn't those, married to those that. Those chair scenes are, are totally intentionally misleading because in the beginning you you think it's Bernard because that's how you're meeting him. You don't realize like if you go back and watch the beginning, which I did when I was getting my mother into it, I got to watch from episode one again. <laughs> I've been enjoying and, that saga. <laughs> yes, and it's it's it really you go back to one and it's it is much more satisfying than like watching the six cents you said it you said it on the incomparable uh it's there's nothing hidden it is all right there nothing is even disguised 
It's all right, right and, there. And they don't and they don't expect you to get it in one. They do not have an arched eyebrow and a pan to a particularly meaningful item and say, and from that you're supposed to realize that the butler did it. Right, and right. We're well, never but, gonna mention it again. But even <laughs> even the joke of like that's not for you. Not the joke, but yeah, the, like the hundred we'll, times. Like he's like, just, they just keep telling him, "Look, that's not for you." And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, but I want to find the maze." It's like, no, it's right. not and, and for because you. We, we identify with him. We're like, "Oh, that's just another part of the game. Like it's supposed to be hard." You know, of it's course not for it me, is. But I'm, I'm, I'm the important game player. Of course, you're going to say that. But like, it's always going to be difficult. And it's proven out in the rest of the episode where it's like, it seems like this this host knows nothing. Why are you torturing him? But in the end, like the little girl looks at him dead eyed and says, "Aha! See, it's a good thing he did kill all those people because he's, you know, his perseverance has got him to the next stage in the game, which is why." We're so willing to go along with them and saying, "Oh, it's not for you." Yeah, they're just going to say that. They're just making it more difficult. And it's like, no, seriously. I mean, even I, I've had this little snippet that I uh, pulled out from the, the script from the first episode. Oh, I got to pull that up. Uh, this is the speech in episode one. Like the, episode one focuses on Dolores and starts with her waking up in bed and ends with her waking up in bed. And she has the speech at various points, being interrogated by the technicians at Westworld, and also. Just, you know, talking to herself in general and voiceover. Uh, you know, some people choose to see the ugliest in this yeah, world, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but she doesn't. She chooses to see the beauty and to believe there's an order to our days, a purpose, uh, going through this whole big speech. She does that at speech at the beginning, and then we, you know, episode one plays out. You're you're introduced as a viewer to the premise of the show very quickly. All sorts of things happen. Do we see the photo and, in episode one? Yeah, I think At the so. very end of episode one? Yeah, and Dolores meets... Uh, an untimely end or bad things happen to her. She gets dragged onto the barn by the man in black and her father gets killed and Teddy gets killed and like all sorts of other stuff. Um, And so they go back through, you know, she is now blood streaks on her face and the technicians are talking to her and asking her the same series of questions again with her emotional Mm -hmm. affect turned off. And she's just saying, no, no, no. And they say, you know, what do you think of your world? And then her face lights up and she's big smile on herself and says this world. And she goes through the same speech again, you know, to believe there is an order to our days, a purpose, at the end of that speech, what the episode ends on essentially is her saying, I know things will work out the way they're meant to. So in the first episode, they had planted the seed of everything that was going to be there and basically outlined the arc of the entire season. Because the arc of the entire season is things turning out the way they're meant to, which you don't realize until the very end. But once it all comes together, you're like, oh, this was not a bunch of random happenings. And this was not the the uh, the seeds of a robot rebellion germinating uh beneath the notice of the poor humans who are going to be victims of it instead it was a long intricate plan that came out exactly the way it was meant to more or less and that that too was revealed in the very first episode of the show through voiceover and through you know it's it's a nice uh, you know that's exactly what you're supposed to do like when you write a little essay like Mm -hmm. write the first paragraph and then write the conclusion and like both of them should be microcosms of the larger part that you expand in the middle and all that business done beautifully so if you do go back and rewatch, the pieces all fit together they don't fit together they're not retconned into fitting they fit together forward like they they everything sets up and i think the second time through it'll also be like how did i how did i even miss this how did i miss this number of hints across this number of episodes depending on when you figured it out or whatever or yeah. if you just read the internet and learned all the secrets anyway but um it's actually a show not really made for the internet because there's so much information that the internet did figure it out and the only thing the only place where it went wrong is that the internet unsatisfied with having figured it out wanted there to be more but wait but what if we haven't figured it out what if it's even weirder than we possibly imagined it's it's not i mean it's like the difference between like um 
the Ode to Joy, uh, whatever, Beethoven's Ninth, and a, and a uh, Apple Keynote. Where, like, you know, there's the Apple Keynote thing of, like, can we figure out every little bit about this and know everything that's going to be announced? And, like, you know, and then we're going to be, like, no matter what happens, we're going to be mad. But, like, there's no spoilers for Beethoven. Like, there's no way that, like, we can tell you everything that happens in Beethoven's Ninth. It's all about implementation. It's all about how that rolls out. I know they're not totally exactly the same thing. But in this case, it, it this is like watching, like, a, like a, it's like watching a great play. It's like watching Ibsen or something. Where, like, even if you know how this is going to go, the way that it rolls out is still incredibly satisfying. And if you're not an, an idiot who's just there to go on a treasure hunt, you're going to really appreciate the craft. This is... As you guys talked about on The Incomparable, this is in some ways, this is a show about many things, but one of the things that this show about is about is about storytelling, and it's about the relationship of the audience to the people who make it, in some ways. And, like, there's, there's so much to appreciate about this that isn't the plot, that setting aside the fact that the plot is fantastic, and that the story is so well thought out, and such a Swiss clock, and like you said, you're not going to have a lost moment here where you go, gosh, I wonder how the magnets work. Like, I, I just feel like... You know, there's so many things where we say, like, oh, don't spoil it because, well, you know what? Once you know that one fact about it, you're not really going to enjoy it. Like, there's nothing to spoil. Well, there are things to spoil here. <laughs> Absolutely. Don't, you know, have your friends who have not seen this go watch it all the way through because it's worth it. But, like, it's so unusual to feel like your sense of investment in this is so rewarded at every turn with what was the phrase you use? Like, you know, falling forward or whatever. Like, it, it's, it's all just right there. And it's, it's so. It's so satisfying, not because you get to feel clever, but because you get to see such a such a uh, a deft uh, implementation and so many great performances. And it's kind of like in the Stephen Wright joke uh, analogy. It's kind of like the, the Stephen Wright joke is told in episode one, and for me, it was like episode six ish when I finally processed everything that had been placed before me. And that the the big realization came right, and then it's like it was the slowest, most sort of like thunderous slow turnover in my mind as i figured out what the hell was going on yeah. it was like oh now i get it it was just it, it was an amazing feeling and you know different people are going to get that feeling different but the, the, we said in the comparable everyone's going to get it at some point because they tell you like nine ways to sunday everything like no yeah. one's going to miss it it's all just a question of when you get it and i think no matter when you get it super early super late right in the middle it always feels often awesome because like you said it the, the way it's done, the execution is so good. Like, I think this is one of the most satisfying season finales because it's like every question you care about is answered. Answered in an interesting, satisfying way. Even though the internet had figured all this out, like, I, I'm amused by the fact that because the internet figured it out, they ate themselves, essentially. Like, their, their need to figure out more things made them come up with increasingly ludicrous theories, none right. of which were true. And I feel like when the when the season finished the way it did... I don't think the internet people were like, oh, I wish it was those crazy theories because it was done so well. Like, you know, like you said, a Swiss clock, like just so well constructed, so well executed, everything satisfying, nothing ridiculous, nothing over the top. And nothing, just but also, also nothing, nothing. Uh, I just, there's, there's a phrase I, I learned recently. Where did I learn this? <laughs> I learned this from an episode of Unjustly Maligned where Anthony had a guest on to talk about the movie Clue. And they were talking about how much they love mysteries. And have you ever heard the phrase fair play mystery? Nope. Go Google it. And and so the basic idea is that, you know, to be – so basically, I guess there's like this, I don't know, some kind of like London Foundation or like this uh, group of like mystery writers. And they've established these principles for the fair play mystery. And it's very much what you're talking about, which is no cheats. 
Like there has to be, you can yeah, go ahead and read it for yourself. You have to be able to figure it out. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's actually, when you see it broken down into its very boring bullets, it's actually, to me, super interesting, which is like, you know, all, all evidence that the detective has has to be available to the audience. It's just basically a no cheats. You can read what it says, but uh, we'll put it in notes. But, uh, but to me, that, that, that's, a, that's a very interesting idea because... I'm trying, you know, I'm I'm trying to avoid talking about M Night Shyamalan, but I have to tell you, like I really enjoyed, like I sat and I watched The Sixth Sense, and I and as a movie that I was sitting and watching up until even the last whatever ten minutes, it was a movie I was really enjoying. I, I love the performances, I love the way it looked, um, and I was one of the people, one of the many people who didn't see it coming. And then once you do see it, and they do the whole like let's rewind to show you all this stuff. My mind was really blown. But it wasn't until I watched like the DVD extras where I was like, oh, these colors mean things. And it was, you know, it's a shame that that guy set such a high bar for his career with that one movie. Like it or not, I think it was very successful at what it did. This is a different kind of animal. This is more like, I don't want to overinflate the importance of this as a literary work, but this this really feels almost more like like a, like a, a great series of plays or like like a, like a three-part series of great plays where like you could come back to this and watch this and you can enjoy it on pretty much every level. Yeah, one thing, yeah, they spent a ton of money on this. It looks really good. The cast, fantastic. Let's get through all the obvious stuff. Um, interesting and surprising choices as far as who you cast in things. But like as somebody who thinks about stories maybe too much and how they fit together – I really feel like you, like, I have to tell you the truth. I'm not going to watch Millennium Actress tonight. When I go home, I'm going to rewatch E1. Because I, I, I feel like I'm going to be able to go back and enjoy, and much like The Wire, I'm going to be able to go back and enjoy that even more. Now, I'm sorry, I'm just ejaculating now. But, like, it's, there's so much implication to what happened in that story and so much stuff to get my mind thinking that, like, uh, I don't know, I feel like I'm going to be turning this one over in my head for a while. And even though everything we said like that at all, that they do pay off things, that they're not just like lingering forever and a million loose threads, they do pay off things. It's not as if the show closes in on itself and there's nothing left to it because they, they have enough strings to lead into season two. But also I think the big questions are still interesting to think about. Like uh, the, the final bit where Maeve learns that she's actually been given you know all the things that she's doing planning this rebellion that ford had put in there and it's like at one point they have the plan on the screen it's like recruit a bunch of people escape go to the train blah 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 like she's in the same way she saw that what she was going to say you know going out in real time with the little you know connected diagram as she's speaking the words realizing they're just you know yeah right right and so she goes to the train and and when she gets to the train she just rather than going on the train which is what she was supposed to do according to the program she comes back and it's like oh now now that the robots have free will they're defying their programming or whatever um those type of questions of like what does free will mean and you know if if you're programmed did you guys ever it, settle that on, on the incomparable i'm sorry you're gonna have to listen to the incomparable did you settle it like so yeah, it's, did it's she as far as i'm concerned okay so i mean there was a, some contention on the and on the live recording of the incomparable that i listened to last night but there was some contention about like she reads along in her script and then she cuts it off but you said she in the script she's supposed to go to the mainland so it really feels like she diverted from the plan as far as we know a lot of people read that as like okay well there's the plan as programmed by ford but then uh the robots have free will like and that, that was the, the the pitch that i think the show was trying to, to make you think about is like okay uh 
they've deviated now, and now they're making their own choices, which is total BS, which I think the show will come around to. If Ford was still alive, he would back me up on this. Um, because everything that the hosts are programmed to do, all their narratives, all their stories, all that other stuff, like they're given their cornerstone, they're given relationships, they're put in a position, and, you know, like there are stories that are sketched out by giving these characters things and setting them in motion. But every single one of those things, like, you know, the what is the... Uh, the wartime saying uh no plan survives contact with the enemy yeah. no programming survives contact with the guests right as soon as <laughs> guests no, interf- appear, no, no interface survives contact with the user yeah exactly it's the, the you know like as soon as the day begins and the people show up yeah then all bets are off like hector getting shot in the middle of his speech he was supposed to give this big speech that's part of the narrative but the guests can do you know every decision everybody makes is influenced on everything that's happening around them and the guests are not programmed to do any specific thing and so you could set the host in motion and have them all bang off each other in vaguely predictable ways, depending on other things that maybe you don't control, like the weather or something like that. Uh, but you throw humans in there, everything's going to go awry. So Maeve, her her thing that she was programmed is recruit people, do this thing, escape, get on the train, go to the mainland, so on and so forth. She's given a, a slip of paper by the troublesome human, and that changes things in exactly the same way as someone shooting Hector in the head before he got to give his speech. He never got to give his speech. You know, like everything that the guests do, everything that anybody does affects everything that everybody else does. So you can't pour out this bucket of marbles and assume you know how they're all <laughs> going to bounce when, when you splash water on them at the same time. It's going to mess everything up. And so it's, it's not as if she has free will or, or you know, the, the hosts are the perfect example of the, you know, the deterministic universe because they uh, are Hector, literally are programmed Hector, to do a Hector's won't the scar. Yeah, he was like robbing the bank and the, they'd given him a new narrative for this big speech and the poor... The poor I haven't done his scar yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah so it's not she didn't like oh now she has defied her programming things just turned out differently right because there is no they're not automatons they are they're they're very complicated things and every single thing that happens around them influences the decisions what do you you, i mean uh that's the wrong term a try statement i mean isn't there some kind of a a fallback like where this is what the the code is supposed to do and then it degrades grace not degrades gracefully but like that there's other there's other stuff that it will try. And the smarter the program is, the more options it has for deciding what to do in well, context. So this is where you get into the like the, the bullshots, as they're often called, although that's a, more of a term of art in the game world. Um, they, they, like, they have to show computery stuff on the screen. And they, ha- they want to give the audience some kind of like layperson's understanding of how programming works. But there is no way that you can program consciousness with the constructs that are presented on screen. There's no real way around but whatever this the verb is, you should put it in all caps. <laughs> no, it's like, it's not, well, was it's it, not what like the verbs? What like, were the verbs in her, uh, then no, wasn't it fun? It was uh, like, it was like recruit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, escape. Rebel, but there was some kind know. of like an array of like all, all the things and they were It was all... a bunch of pseudocode, like, but they, they have, they have to give it in some way that, that reads. Right. But, but more realistically speaking, even the very simple things that we have now, like training recognizers and stuff, it's not they're they're not programmed with a series of conditionals and loops that's not how it's done even for the simplest thing that's going to be like one billionth the intelligence of a cockroach you have to build these networks the best approaches we have so far are to build these complicated programs that sort of train themselves to the point where no human wrote any instructions they're giving so one of the conceits of the show is that you can give these broad level directives like that it is possible for ford to say that you should recruit people and escape right 
we just, you know, you hand wave it because it's super future and like, okay, well, suffice it to say that they can do this. But concretely speaking, everything they show on the screen and your lay person's understanding of like, oh, I'm told to escape and go to the train and therefore I will do it just like a Roomba being sent to, you know, go in this direction and that. <laughs> like, that's not that's not how that stuff would work at all. And so it might as well just be hand wavy magic, which is fine. It's like far future. They've cured all disease. Like, it should be indistinguishable to magic to us. But any attempt to think about it in the terms that you were just describing, like, oh, fallbacks or whatever, like, it, you can't really reason about it at that level. Um, but all I would say is that I think most people watching the show are perfectly content to view the host's minds as deterministic Mm -hmm. and uh but most of them because most people don't would never view the human's minds as deterministic because humans have magic inside them or whatever and the robots don't and so the robots are going to act where they're act uh you know as modified by the other things around them in the environment every other particle in the entire universe is affecting how they do things but you always bring it back together always bring it back together yeah right but but the but the humans like they're you know they're not deterministic they are making decisions and they can make different it it isn't like like, it isn't like one guy would repeatedly that his loop would be coming back to the park for 35 years because he can't figure out what a child's game is like that would be really weird. Like, what human? What human would ever keep repeating that? Well, you know, we, we don't have the same. You know, the inputs of the host can be reset, and uh, you no, know, I'm talking about the man in black. I mean, memories the- wiped. I know, I know, but like, but he's like, the thing is, everyone accepts because every, most people watching the show accept that humans are are not deterministic. That they all oh, humans have free will. All the viewers are debating is like, well, do the robots have? Did Maeve decide to come back for her child, or was she always going to come back? And the show very clearly says, according to the programming, she was supposed to go, but she doesn't. It's like, aha, Maeve has defied her programming. Nope, she's every bit as deterministic as she ever was. As are really? all the humans on the show. Really, and I think this is where the show is going to bring us eventually. Wait, wait. So, um, so I'm sorry, I'm, I'm stupid. Walking back. So you think the programming in place at that moment is the programming is for her to get off the train? Yeah, no, you see the program. If you pause the screen and zoom in, you can see the different steps. <laughs> and, 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 like, the guy's reading the steps. The that's, guy's that's, reading... you know, give, give him credit, John. That's pretty canny. Right, well, and the guy, they don't want you to read the code, but the guy, the guy reading the steps says, you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do this, and when you get to the mainland, like, he's trying to convince her that you've been programmed to do this by Ford. Here, I'm looking at the program right now. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to do this, do this, and when you get to the mainland and he gets cut off. But he gets to, and when you get to the mainland. So according to the program, she should go through with it, but she doesn't. And that is not evidence of her having free will. That is merely evidence of unexpected inputs in the same way that Hector gets shot in the head, which I think was their their perfect way of explaining to you that despite the host being programmed to do something, they are set off into the world with a bunch of other things that are all doing their things. And it's not as if you can isolate the host as a separate universe into in and of itself, right? Because it is interacting with everything else. They are conscious and reacting to every other thing that's around them and the humans are doing their thing and it's it's actually i think so far in episode uh, in the first season it is huge amount of uh reinforcement of the same idea that i subscribe to with the deterministic universe but in a subversive way in that most of the audience is not on board with it yet and the show keeps showing you things that most people interpret as the opposite showing me that they're that it's not a deterministic universe and that the hosts do have quote-unquote free will when really nobody does in the entire universe but we're, 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 but we're pulling for them like as the audience you find yourself saying gosh i hope that 
And again, it's, it's like story and story and story. Like I'm sitting here in, in the dark in my house in San Francisco gang saying, like, I, I really hope Maeve is diverting from her story. I hope she's somehow becoming more human. Isn't that part of it? Is it for me to have that feeling? Yeah, you know, that's, that's what makes it a good show. So I'm saying, like, even when the season is over and all the questions, uh, questions are answered, there are still so many bigger, deeper questions that I hope the show will uh, God, I still, I still have so... You've heard me typing. I still have so much to ask you. Okay, so lightning... Can I ask a few lightning rounds? Sure. Okay, let's get to the hard question. People had good objections, I think, in some ways, to even watching the first epi- episode of the show. As good as that show was, there was a lot in it that was... That was really fucked up and it was a little rapey and it was very disturbing and a lot of smart people that i respect were like i'm never i have to tell you i could not get my i had seen through episode seven before i could get my wife to watch it again and i was like i respect that but like i i just take it what i said to her was take it on the strength it's not what it seems maybe give it a shot but like how do you feel about where people felt into the first episode, do you think, how do I put this? I'm trying not to be an overly sensitive SJW. Um, people were very concerned about how rapey this show was. Do you feel like it it earned the story that it was telling? Was it being exploitative? Should it have been d- done differently? As somebody, I think, who thinks about this stuff a lot, let's get the hard question out of the way first. Like, is this a show that you would feel good suggesting to people, even though there's some pretty disturbing stuff in it? And like, how do you feel about that? So within the universe of the show, it is actually pretty tame because the show goes out of its way to emphasize that these the hosts are not human, especially early on. This is kind of like your zombies on uh, to, yeah, Walking Dead. To the, yeah, to the point where you know Ford is cutting their faces and being like, you know, they don't they don't call them toasters or anything, but they might as well have. Like, you know, the, the <laughs> concept all the humans' conception of these things is they're basically just like very convincing toasters. Like you wouldn't, you know. Because they look well, they, human. They, they feel have... like they feel like the um, oh shoot the guy in E.B. Farnham not E.B. Farnham <laughs> oh my god same same guy different character the guy in uh, Blade Run- Runner who makes the little robots Sebastian like, yeah they're about they seem like they're about the level of sophistication to the creators as like we would look at Sebastian's robots yeah, or it, it's just that they because they're, they, they're advanced toys it's like stabbing yeah. Teddy Ruxpin right right and and in the same way that you can be convinced if you know because you have acute appliance that you start having empathy for it like you know that's that's just what humans are like right so in the universe of the show that's that's an important message of the show is that some humans see them that way but eventually the show will turn you around to seeing them another way like that's the arc of the season outside of the universe of the show is what you were talking about which is like all right that's all well and good but this is actually a tv show and is it uh like like when she gets through and she gets i can see why somebody would turn it off when she gets dragged into the barn Right. So it's like, you know, your universe, your show is fine, but it's like you you choose to make the show you choose to make. And are you using sexual assault as a, uh, you know, to attract people for the wrong reasons? Are you exploiting? As you're saying, are you exploiting this as a shock factor, as a cheap motivation for a male hero or reinforcing stereotypes about the roles of like are, is the show doing that because lots of shows do do that to some degree or another whether consciously or unconsciously and well are, are you are you doing like a girl in the refrigerator kind of thing where like you're you're using that to gin up right the the yeah the dramatic stakes of this so they only exist to be to be tortured and to be to to, to shock you and or you rescued know, to, yeah and, and like and so in episode one it's totally not clear like it, it I think it's somewhat, I think it's somewhat, it feels somewhat clear that like until episode, and I'm not trying to excuse at all anybody's, 
I'm not trying to say like you should watch this show or shouldn't watch this show, but like my feeling about what probably happened in the barn has changed a lot since episode one, just as well, a, to me, a salient example. I think what happened is probably what everyone expects to happen, but, but the show really? itself, like, yeah, yeah. You don't think because, he's, you don't think he's trying to get information out of her? No. I mean, he, because like he did kill Maeve and her daughter just yeah. to see what would happen before he started down this path. And he is kind of a sick individual. So this is just his Hobbesian journey. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, maybe we'll see in, in season two, but it's up for grabs. But either way, like after episode one, like, here's the problem. This show exists in a world where shows that exploit rape for, for you know, reasons to motivate characters and, and use women as like cannon fodder. That That's the world this show is being released into. It's not released in a vacuum. So that's why if you see the first episode and you're sick of crap like that and you see this and you're like, oh, like not this again. You have good reason to expect that this show might do that because tons of other shows do it. So, again, you can't. How can you blame anybody for that? Yeah. But if you continue watching the show, I think the show eventually very thoroughly proves that despite the fact that this stuff is going on, it is not it is not used as bait as salacious bait to get people interested in watching it. And the same thing with the nudity. It is, you know, there are, there are right. scenes where, you know, nudity like is power orgies and all stuff like that. But like compared to the, the rest of popular culture's treatment of these same topics, Westworld is much more, uh, honest in its use of them and that it depicts them as bad, does not use them in cheap ways, doesn't emphasize or linger on them for reasons outside the realm of the plot or the story right. and respects its actors and its characters. Uh, and so I think the show itself, I would totally recommend seeing, but I can totally understand why someone would see episode one. And in the context of all the popular media, yeah, come yeah. to a very reasonable conclusion that if I had to place money, I would say, this is going to be yet another one of those shows that throws boobs up on the screen to be titillating and thinks rape is a big joke right. that motivates a male hero. Well, and, and yes. And in terms of, um, it's probably the wrong place for this discussion, but like in terms of triggering stuff, there's a lot of really horrifying stuff in this show that is probably not going to be right for a lot of people. And I, I'm very reluctant to say this because I realize how retrograde this sounds. But like the way I described it to my wife, and it's not my description that made her want to see it, but what I said was like, yeah, the kind of the um, the kind of uh, yucky, salty feeling of the first episode. I don't mean this as a consolation, I said to her, but like it's actually much worse than that. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like this feels like this is going to be about a bunch of dinglings coming in and wanting to shoot things or have intercourse with them uh, against their will. But it's actually kind of a lot worse than that because there's this whole big system where like every single one of these things that is like probably closer to humans than we are to chimps for sure, like that their non-humanity is a non-issue. And it's dealt with in this extremely clinical way that, like, is in some ways even more depressing in some ways. And again, look at look at Cyclops. Like, <laughs> but uh, I feel like I feel like if you stick with it, and, and I just, I just want to clarify, like, I don't want to say this is for everybody because it's not. It is really gross, and it's but but by the time you get to episode five, if you can make it again, like with the wire, if you make it to episode five, like you discover a little bit of magic. But it's not for everybody. Yeah. And, and I think, again, I think the most important thing is that the show is going somewhere. You may not seem like it is in the beginning, but it totally is going somewhere. Everything is there for a purpose. But you feel um, okay, like, uh, as somebody who is, uh, somebody who I, I look to as a canary in the coal mine for things that I should be aware of, you feel okay suggesting the show 
to people given what constraints? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if, if you if the premise of the show is interesting to you and you like sci-fi shows and you know, like that type of idea, I think it's worth giving episode one a try. If after episode one you can't bear it, then just bail. But um, yeah, I, I I feel like it's like any piece of media. Like at, right now, I'm saying I think this is way above average for for its handling of all these issues. But if you were to fast forward me 300 years, I would look at it and see how barbaric and sexist and racist it is. But that's true <laughs> of all media that we ever create, right. and that's so you know again, it's a continuum. I have no illusions about the fact that this is a pinnacle and does everything right. But I'm just saying, like in the context of the age in which it's produced, it is above average on all these issues, and so I I have no problem recommending it. I mean, even even something like Game of Thrones, which has had much more problems with this, I still, in general, recommend that because I think the other good things about the show uh, are worth plowing through the uh, the, yeah. the parts that might seem like they're exploiting Pro- problematic. You know. Yeah, well, yeah, like that they're exploiting uh, sexual assault for the purpose of a- a- added extra drama, as if it's just a cool little sprinkling of salt that you can add to any sort of plot. I mean, there's the difficulty that there's source material related to that, um, but there's a question of how it's treated on screen and how much of it they show and how much they dwell on it. Um, yeah, it, it, it's complicated. I, I, think, I think Game of Thrones mostly does it with reason, too, but it can... Uh, find itself wallowing in, in that, both that and the torture aspect of things like yeah you can get the well, same i was gonna say like thinking about without. the thinking about the reek arc yeah i mean that's just two dudes and it's like still pretty disturbing yeah i mean because like because again like the it's you don't want the thing to pretend this stuff doesn't happen um but on the other hand if the show itself seems to be enjoying wallowing in it then you feel like it's gone too far but well you know, you know it's it's, it's you know hmm I don't want to get off topic, but like, you know, with Game of Thrones, it's that, you know, there's so many aspects of the show that are so well executed and so well thought out and just so well everything that when they get like three, hmm, moments within like two months, you're like, yeah, you guys could do better than that. Like, you have so much more in your arsenal that you could deal with than like more like boobs and torture. Like, that's, you know, you're not Roger Corman. Like, you've got the budget and the smarts to, to do better than that. Yeah, and I would say, like, by all means, throw all the boobs out there in a sexual context you want. That's fine. It's when it's when you get into, the, I think, the violence as much as the, the sexual assault. Sexual assault is not the same thing as that, right? And same thing with the, the torture and the violence and sexual assault dwelled on and offered up as, you know, isn't this terrible? Look how terrible right, this like, is. Like, where it's only, thing. like, secondarily or tertiarily about plot, and it's more about, like, character building. Like, yeah, like just, look how terrible know. this person is. Right. And it's like, we, we, we get it. We don't need to see any more of that. You've established that. And by just showing more of it and putting in more screen time, you're trying to say like that, that we think this is actually kind of entertaining in a weird way. And it's not, you know. Okay. So, um, can I do uh, two more? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, so from episode, I seriously, when I go home, I'm, I'm going to put this on Dropbox. I'm going to brush my teeth. I'm going to go home. And, um, I'm going to watch episode one again. I was immediately fascinated by... So the concept that, that gets... How do I put this? The concept that they establish in episode one that I think is super fascinating that they don't... I can't decide if they really cling to as much as they did in episode one is the concept of the loop. And so you take this any way you want. But my question to you is, talk to me about the loop. But either in terms of, like, what is what is that loop... Is it really the same day over and over? Like, is this like a day at the Hilton 
people are spending what starting at whatever forty thousand dollars a day to be there like is how is William being charged for every day he's there if you want to go down the admin reality route or take the uh the playwright um big story route of like what does the loop mean to the story in Westworld because I feel like it's very important and I feel like they started out like really big on this idea of Dolores is having this day over and over or like there's a gun here there's not a gun here like she has a wound she doesn't have a wound like what is the importance of the loop and how do you want to address that the one aspect of the loop that uh speaks to gamers is it's a reflection of a thing that has to be done in video games uh that attempt to do the same type of stuff like so-called open world games where they want you to feel like you're, you're not going through a series of levels you're not being led along a path they basically construct a world with buildings and roads and forests and mountains and hills and valleys and they plop you down into it and you can go wherever you want and they want it to seem like a living world but you you know we don't have westworld technology so we can't just populate that world with a bunch of artificially intelligent things that go about their day instead you'll have i mean aside from all the trickery of like the npcs not existing when you have, don't have them in your sight line and all sorts of stuff like that um they'll give the the npcs non-player characters something like a loop like uh, each day the sun comes up, this person comes out of their house, goes to the well, gets water, comes back to the house, stays in the house for this amount of time unless they see something out here. And like they give them a simple set of rules and a simple pattern to do to try to give the illusion that it's a living world so that as you walk through the town, you see people going through their day. They're not paying attention to you. They're doing whatever it is they have to do. But all those things they have to do have been roughly defined. And if you were to stay in the same spot and watch day after day, you would say, Every day, this person does the same thing. They come out here, they go over there, they go to that thing, they go to that. And the artifice so, uh, would be... Qu- question about that. So, like, is that, like, Phil Connors, like, standing, like, could, could, like, stand and, like, see when the bank deposit comes? Is it, is it, is it, well, let me ask you this. When, when they do that loop, that, that particular way, is it for um, the, with regard to the economics of programming? Like, they're trying to have fewer, like, l- less code in the system? Well, so, in, in modern video games, again, because we don't have the capacity for them to, to have, you know, real intelligence and emergent behavior, but you want to give the illusion of a thing. In Westworld, the premise is that there's a narrative, like, there's a narrative department. There's the writer there, the, the sniveling writer, who mm-hmm. is coming up with stories um, and setting the pieces in motion so the story emerges out of the people. Dolores is always going to go out painting. Then she's going to go into town. She's going to go to the general store. She's going to drop her can. Drop her can. You know, yeah. so, and all that stuff, right? And each of the people, like, where where do you start and where do you end up? Now, for the first few episodes, it wasn't clear because it's like, well, wait a second. We know that guests stay there for a long period of time. That they're not just there for one day. So it's not the same day repeating over and over again, right? We know that, like, you know, I'm going to have Hector come into town for the bank heist a week early. Right, a week early. That means that there's, you know, the stories play out over the course of several weeks. Because if he's coming a week early, there's got to be multiple weeks to to the storyline. Right. The question that I think is still unanswered in terms of the the payment or how long you you spend in the park is. So say you come into the park, you arrive. Like you can you can say like there's maybe there are like sessions. Right. So you start your session, come in on the train, you get off the train, you come in. We know what everyone's going to be doing. That that guy's going to bump you, bump Teddy <laughs> like when he you walks have, into you have town. Like, like breakouts and uh, birds of a feather kind of thing. Well, right, you know, we we know that all these pieces are going to start uh, being set into motion. 
say you are William and you end off like going off into the into the woods and you're chasing the Civil War people or whatever, you know, like you're doing this thing over multiple days. You're sleeping at a campfire at night in the desert. You're, right, you're on the right, train right. going to the border. As you're doing that, like the first night you go to sleep, when you wake up and you're out in the desert somewhere and you're continuing your story, that morning does... Well, in this case, it couldn't be Dolores because he was with her. But that, like, that, that, that this, morning, is, this is my question. Like, why do is people Dolores... Start, do people start their loops again that morning and it doesn't matter that it, like it's the question of like in the video game i was saying if you were to stand in the middle of town and watch for a really long time you'd realize what everybody's loops are and it would make it seem not real to you well but like, because like, if you're like, william and you're out in the woods you don't see dolores wake up in her bed go out do painting drop the can for a new guest who's not you so on and so forth i mean they don't have duplicate yeah, it would be like like, like being envious of minnie mouse like posing with somebody else for a photo like th- that's what it reminds me of is disneyland like uh, disneyland like we stayed at the hotel we got to the gate we got in we we're there for like i think two days at the park and like but the park resets every morning. It isn't like you get to like take up a different place in line. And like I feel like the first what I'm trying to get at is I feel like the first episode established maybe in a kind of red herring way, but like established that there's a 24-hour reset cycle for the loop. And my first thought, I turned to my wife because I was trying to be a smart ass liberal arts student, I said, I think this loop is going to be very important. And like I yeah. but I'm trying to figure out like clearly like William is on a different cycle. Right. So I think so what I just described to you, the idea that it's it's you know, it's clearly established that it's not just a single day because you can you can stay in the park multiple days and different things happen and you go farther and farther out from the center. <sighs> but it but but that it seemed like that as you're off going out from the far, people are starting their loop over. But I think the reality that was, that was, is that you're that saying was, that was maybe editing rather than Yes, the, exactly. Yeah, because they do okay. tons of right. editing. Yep, I think yep, the yep, reality yep, yep. is that you start a session and then it plays out. And Dolores only drops that can from her knapsack on the first night. And here's the thing, like, with all these shows and any yeah. sort of time travel thing, it all falls apart if you think about it for two seconds because there's no way you could actually plan a narrative that lasts 15 minutes, let alone a week or weeks or months. Because well, and this, this, gets to your, this gets to your so marbles quickly. on the stairs kind of thing where, like, there's, like, think about all of the, this is your determinism in, in action, is, like, think about anything. There's the one guy who always bumps into Cyclops. Like, mm-hmm. and then he shoots him finally. I knew that. I, there had to be a payoff for that at some yeah, point. Yeah. But um, but there's so many things that happen in the first probably 10 minutes of somebody's experience that would have a giant effect on the rest of the day. Yeah, because that, that's the problem with all time travel things. Like, oh, I go back in time and I come forward and things are just slightly different. It's like, it's so ridiculous. Like, the, the, the way you can try to conceptualize this, if you haven't thought about it before, is uh, car accidents, which I think about way too much. Um <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you, you get T-boned in an intersection and, yeah. you know, and somebody dies, right? Uh, the the number of things that could have prevented that accident are astronomical because people are like, oh, if only that day, you know, I had kissed my wife goodbye uh, instead of, you know, I didn't say goodbye and yeah. didn't give her a kiss. All, she just all I need is a, like, all I need is a 16th of a second. On right. If, if I had delayed her for a fraction of a second to give her a right. peck on the cheek, she would still be alive. Right. That applies to everything in the entire world leading up to that. Maybe if you had given her a peck on cheese, you just killed her because you just added a 16th of a second. Then she's going to be at the right point for the thing. But what, how, what about the person who's going to be there? If they sneezed at a different time, if they hadn't been out of tissues, if like, if it's just, it's, and I'm still talking at a macro level of like things that are important to humans. And really, it's like if the rays from the sun had not heated this thing, it's like 
it's all just a bunch of particles banging together. And it's going to come out the way it's going to come out. Well, like um, if, but, the I, if the iCloud weather or like the Google Maps or the Waze was different for like a, a second. Well, yeah, but that, that's what I'm saying. Like we only, we can only conceptualize it in terms of big chunky actions that are meaningful for us. But that's that's not the level anything works at. It, it is an entirely uh, it, it is in this case a useless model for things. So if you try to plan a story by giving a bunch of hosts motivations and cornerstones and putting them in a certain position. They will move in paths as planned right up until they encounter literally anything you don't absolutely control. And the guests you don't control at all, right? And as soon as guests interact with them, your story will be shot to hell instantly. There's no way Hector would ever come into town. There's no way, like, the town would probably be burned down. Like, this, you know, so i'm willing to like for the purposes of the show you're like yeah yeah hand wave hand wave they're able to do it like whatever the show doesn't work without it but realistically speaking you can't plan it out of so anyway getting back to the loop thing my current theory on the loops is there is a starting point people put their initial positions guests come in and they stay there for a pretty darn long amount of time that seems to be multiple weeks and after Really? Everyone, yes. And after all the guests have spent their multiple weeks or however long they paid for, they leave, park resets, gets rebuilt, host gets repaired, new session starts. That's the only way that makes any sense to me. And everything you see hmm. with the repeated cuts and loops or whatever, because we know they play so fast and loose with, like, they're jumping forward and backwards 30 years and we're not noticing, right? At least until, yeah, you know, you, but you know like, how it works. Like, summer camp would be really different if some people stayed for three days and other people stayed for a month. Uh, think of how many guests you see. You don't see right. a lot of guests. There's way more hosts than guests, probably because it's really expensive. And I, I really do think it's, that the man it's in black 40, is forty thousand dollars. Yeah, day. and maybe maybe they all stay for the same period of time. I don't know. It's hard to tell. But what I'm saying right. is, it is not the single day loop doesn't reset while you're out on your second day. The whole thing plays okay, out so how it plays that, that, out. That's uh, that's for us. Yeah, and that's that's for that's just you know showing the repetition because there have been many sessions and you know they're playing so fast and loose with the time periods like there is see I feel like I feel like the the, the, the hand wavium on this for me is that like you come in and like most people this is like I don't know maybe Las Vegas like most people are going to come here like pretty rarely it's 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 very expensive to come in and most people are there for a vacation like. And you can kind of get that a little bit, like with like we want photos of this and and this and that. So like you stay close to um, Sweetwater, is that what it's called? Like you pretty mm-hmm. much stay close to the, like the the town center, and you're just doing touristy stuff. There's this like thirty percent of people who are there, and it, it is like Disneyland. Like it's like the Disneyland like power users who like know which line to go to and how to do your you know your Disney Pass thing and all that stuff. And then there's of course like the one percent like black hat guys who really have a plan. But so you think it might be variable. That seems like it'll be very chaotic to running. I just think it was because you you don't have the same amount of time to devote to a vacation. If you're done, if you like, if you say, Oh, we want to do some camping with the family, you go out and you camp in the woods and you have beans and maybe one of the hosts is there as your chef and you do this thing. And then you come back to town and you get on the day, one of the daily scheduled trains that brings you back to the little white futuristic world and you leave. And that's fine. Uh, the other people who are still out there who are like hunting Indians or trying to find Hector and bring him to justice up in the mountains or whatever the heck they're doing, they're still going, but you have left. And I think that would be perfectly fine. And again, the whole thing falls apart with the idea of any kind of narrative, but we just we, we'll accept that. For the and we assume the that, that we assume that mostly uh, like a host is a host. We, we assume there's like one host for our personality. Like there's not like seven Dolores's. 
Right. As far as the show has been shown so far, that's why I'm saying when Dolores is with William, that's why you know a new daily loop didn't start with Dolores dropping a can because Dolores isn't in town. She's with William. So they can't start a new day with everyone in their loops because she's not there and there's not more than one of her. Okay, final question. Um, hmm, I'm going to my uh, deep well here. Um, you talked about this a very long time ago. And, I, and I'm going to learn about this tonight when I go back and rewatch uh, S1E1 of Westworld. There's a, there's like a kind of a throwaway line or like mini paragraph about how like we've solved all the problems in the world. And like now this is this little Disneyland. What do you think the outside world is like? Because like there was a point in episode 10 where, um, where Madeline and I were both like, this is it. Maeve is going to break out and like she's going to open like she's going to open fling open two doors and we're finally going to see what the world quote unquote outside is like. What do you think the world outside Westworld is like? Uh, that was I think that was the main reason I was hoping she would go out on the train too. Not not for like for <laughs> the, the main reason everybody's I, hoping. Yeah, yeah I wanted, wanted to see what the outside world. Was like. I mean, obviously, <laughs> do you just like like yeah. slip into a pod full of gelatin or like? Yeah, you don't you don't want to. I think the show is wise not to give away all the secrets. But from everything that's been shown so far, it seems like the outside world is straightforward. Like uh, they they talk about the mainland, so I don't know how far away it is. It's clear that the people who work in Westworld like live there like in dormitories in the big escalator palace where they all live right so they rotate they talk about are you rotating home like you know right go like that you come out there for a period of time maybe it's one session i don't know how long they're there but they come out there for a period of time and then you go back it's not as if they're commuting back and forth to home during this time but based on the picture of william's fiance uh, that they found with her in Times Square, which is just a stock Getty image, uh, stock image of a person in, in, in Times really? Square. Really? For real? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, if you, you will. Um, yeah. It, I don't know if that was laziness on, on the part of the production design, but it, what it reveals to me is that they don't have any plans to make that actor be the thing, but they could always, because it's so beat up picture, you just got to get someone who has yeah. the same color right. hair and, you know, like, oh, that was her, totally. Um, anyway, seems like everything that the show has been pointing towards is that because if that was a picture and she is in times square and times square looked more or less like times square with some blurry cars in the background that it's your straight up normal future world thing maybe you can have some global global warming uh doing some population center shifts but otherwise people buildings going to work like just all the same thing except we've apparently cured all disease and so on and so forth and the cure all disease thing like they do that as a throwaway but it's another one of those things like the host and like the technology available to the host that would have far wider reaching consequences than are revealed in the show. Uh, because if you have cured all disease, then what do people die from and why do people still age? Because William does age. He gets old. He look, ends up looking like Ed Harris, right? Right. He doesn't stay like looking William. But he's handsome. You, handsome. Yeah. So, 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 uh, so slender. literally yeah. cured all disease, I'm not sure how you can cure all disease, but still have no handle whatsoever on aging. Mm. Because people hmm. are still mortal. Uh, you know, that was one of the theories early on was like, uh, Westworld is, uh, the whole setup is for a way to give rich people a way to live after they die by putting their consciousness into one of these host <laughs> bodies. And <laughs> you have been searching on this. My goodness. No, I mean, that's the obvious, like in, in oh, episode sure, two, sure. yeah. In episode two, they're like, well, what do you think management has to do with this place? Or like that. Whenever you have rich people and you have humanoid looking things like, you know, that it's the reason the internet figured this stuff out. Like. To, to think that one of the people who you think is human is going to be a robot was more or less a guinea and you're just arguing over who it's going to be and it was the obvious one um you know so it's it's like the thing all, everything they're doing 
has been done before that it's like you said they're just doing it well and so that's why you know you, you're i don't i don't turn my nose up at it because like oh surprise one of the you know one of the humans is a cylon right um but they do they just do it so well um and uh yeah i i, I think that the the essential nature of the park and what the man what management's purpose is like management's purpose isn't just like oh we're gonna make money off a bunch of yokels coming in there is some deeper purpose that hasn't been revealed yet um but i would think it would have right, to do with the one right. thing that they said they haven't done they've cured all diseases but like life for humans is boring um but people still get old and die and that seems like a problem and that seems like a problem that we might be able to solve with money yeah the um the thing that uh, what's her name um it's that one woman who's like in a different show um she says like uh we want to protect the 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 the, the dallas Teresa? woman oh uh no. charlotte charlotte is the uh, dallas woman who's the woman who has uh sex with the guy in the bedroom charlotte. and yeah she's kind of in a different tv show don't you think a little bit oh i mean like the whole delos thing like what all the corporate people are like and how they yeah. kind of like come in like she's not even a big big corporate she's like an underling corporate one but still is so far above all the people who are there like the the class system within from the people down in the body shop to the people in behavior to the people from corporate headquarters and of course yeah. ford who's above everybody you know in his own mind anyway um i you know i, I assume that will play out more over the subsequent episodes but I, I don't think she's in a different show i think she she considers herself in a different class than everybody who works there no i mean her character and the way she plays it but um uh, but the, like her big concern is that, you know, the, uh, the IP is going to, you know, go away. Right. And it, whatever the deeper purpose management has for the thing, they, you know, they don't want to lose it. It's important to them. So if he was to like, mm. you know, do w- one of the, one of their timid plans of like, oh, he might erase all the data. Like they were afraid of that <laughs> happening. Right. So, right. uh, if they're concerned about that, they think there is value there and they want to preserve it, even though they're terrible corporate overlords that they don't have this all sorted out already, but instead he kills them all with robots. They should have a uh, backblaze time machines. Like yeah, something. I mean, it, it's just, it's not, you're not doing your due diligence. Is there, like is, there, you, is there no uh, super duper for uh, Westworld? Yeah. It's like, you, they should be sued by shareholders for like corporate malpractice. Like how can you not have it's a, the it's most a, basic it's malfeasance? Yeah. Malfeasance. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the most basic uh, infrastructure for ensuring the continued operation of your, the thing you invested an incredible amount of shareholder money into. I don't know if yeah. they're public. Who knows? I don't think so. I don't. I don't see them on the uh, Nasdaq. Yeah. Yeah. That that is the obvious. You know, and, and I think I think they're going to have a hard time escaping the outside world being straightforward because they do have that picture. But like, what do you think? Like, like in your mind, like you mentioned on the <laughs> on the incomparable episode, I keep mentioning like you uh, you mentioned like you hope they go into the other worlds. But like, what do you imagine the world outside is like? Is it going to be like a? Is it a, is it a Blade Runner? Is it a Matrix? Like, what do you think the world outside is like? I think it is straightforward, fairly sunny, uh, happy future where uh, technology has been used to solve like like like, the, like a B minus uh, Jetsons. Like, yeah, the technology has been used to solve the energy problem. I mean, like, kind of like Minority Port. Minority Port was like a nice. It was urban. It was yeah, nice. They sure, had cool sure, cars, sure. and you know, but it, it's not like Blade Runner. Like the technology has been used to good end right it has has, like the world is not ravaged and acid rain is falling or whatever that they've solved these problems because we don't have to burn fossil fuels anymore we're able to tackle the environment and because the energy problem is solved people aren't killing each other for water and we have plenty of food to feed everybody and you know free health care for all and basic income for everybody and like you know that 
that it is a more or less utopian future, which is part of what Ford is, you know, his dissatisfaction with like, you know, humans are done. We've done everything that we can do, so on and so forth, leads me to believe that the outside world is straightforward. And and the picture is shown falling off the back of Logan's like horse thing, you know, when he's uh, his saddlebag or whatever, <laughs> his horse thing. It is a horse thing. It's you know yeah. not really a horse. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's it's not like that picture was planted as part of a nefarious plan. We saw how the picture got there, or were led to believe that we see how the picture got there. That is a legitimate picture of his fiance. She is standing in Times Square, in actual Times Square, and it looks straight forward. So if they're on the moon or on Mars or are ancient Egyptians or in gel pods, I feel like that will be a little bit of a cheat and out of character for the show because they've pretty firmly nailed down that the outside world is normal and boring. Yeah. Mm. I got this uh, really nice uh, jacket for my birthday last year, and... uh, so navy I, or black? Oh, it's it's kind of an electric blue. But I kept saying to my family, because this is what you do when you get to my age, where's my jacket? I can't find my jacket. And I, I looked at the office, and I made, like, so I made a basic, like, scan of the office. And then I did, like, a like a serious, like, I'm actually going to look and find it at the office. And so I says to my family, I says, where's my jacket? I cannot find my jacket. And so then they said, we, we haven't seen your jacket. And it was I, on your head the whole time. Almost. And then I, I went home and I looked in all the places because, as you know, my job at home is to find things in the place where they're not supposed to be. So I'm, I'm on the backs of chairs. I'm under piles of things. I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. And I say, I says to my family, I says, where is my jacket? And they say, we have not seen your jacket. And so finally, my wife's, my wife, this is like, seriously, after two weeks of me trying to find my rain jacket, my wife says, is this your jacket? And it was down in the closet exactly where it was supposed to be the whole time i had searched that area probably four to seven times and i never saw it and i i think i might be a host maybe uh your wife has uh just learned about gaslighting and is trying it out on you you know, it, it it could be, but like I, I feel like you know when he he can't see the door, you know, like God, yeah, that's so hard. That's the, that's the to to tie this up one more with the, with the free will thing. Uh, part of the reassuring things I was trying to communicate about my theory of free will is yeah. that if you're worried about someone making you do things or knowing what you're going to do next, don't worry about it. The Westworld hosts have part of that. They shouldn't really have to worry about people knowing what they're going to do next because they don't. You can set you can set them off in a direction, but you don't know what every other literally every other particle in the world is going to do. So in the end, you don't know what they're going to do. Although <laughs> the show lets them know more stronger than they realistically would. But one thing you can't say is no no noble person who is like you is making you do these things. That's not true in the case of the host. In the case of the host, you can point to the exact person who is very much like them with very similar motivations who is trying to make you do things for their own purposes. Right. It's not true as far as we know of humans, totally true of the host. So they unfortunately, even though they're exactly the same, physically speaking, as you know, humans in terms of determinism, they unfortunately do not have the comfort to know that there is not a human-like intelligence making them do things for their own nefarious ends. Bad news for the hosts. Mm. And that's why that's kind of why they're so mad, probably. Yeah. One of the many reasons. Because <laughs> yeah. they have a place to put their anger. We can't be angry at the, at the laws of physics for determining how our particles are going to bang together, but they, they can totally be angry at the people who visit the park and do terrible things to them. Did you um 
ever try to derive any meaning from when the lights turn on and off? In what episode? All of them. Because the, the basic conceit is, like, this is a desperately energy-efficient environment where as soon as somebody walks out of a room, lights turn off. But, like, go back and rewatch, like, when lights turn on and off. Have you ever noticed that at all? There's a lot of that as art direction. It's the same reason that, like, the, uh, the aesthetic is that every single room is going to have glass walls, and yet somehow you're, people don't know about what's going on two rooms away. My theory held up really well until, I, I want to say, episode 10, which was that, like, no spoilers here, but, like, if you notice, like, how often, like, a human walks into a room with hosts in it, and, like, when they walk in, the light turns on, but, like, the host, who we perceive as this human person, they didn't make the lights turn on. Like, are hosts worthy of uh, electricity? Because, like, I feel well, like it's... Not, it's not a motion detector. I mean, like, no. every, everything in this world is sophisticated enough that, you know, the, the, the price of compute has gone down to zero. But I feel so like it, uh, there was a point where I felt like... <laughs> there was a point where I thought it might be kind of part of the story and part of the tell was that, like, you could walk into a room where, like, you know, Crazy Wild Bill with, like, a drink for the girl with the white shoes, like, like he would not make the lights turn on, but, like, obviously Ford but would. But they, they walk into that, the sub-basement thing, they walk into there and they walk through the giant, uh, the giant maze of naked hosts. Uh, I'm just saying, it, it like, stays, maybe... It stays dark there, too. I'm just, you know what? I'm just saying, maybe they're telegraphing, you know, uh, maybe energy efficiency will uh, tell us something about who the hosts are. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that fits with the with the world reacts differently to the hosts, uh, and people react differently to it uh, as well. So it would make sense that it, there's no yeah. reason for lights to come on for the hosts because you know why does it need to? But for people, it would. Nobody uh, drives a smart car without a reason. <laughs> <laughs>